Hello kids, we are here at episode number 10. The big 1-0. The big 1-0, baby. <laughs> yes, double digits. Welcome to another fucking horror podcast. I'm Lonnie Sanchez. I'm Amy Trayton. And we're here at episode number 10. This is so exciting. Number 10, I know, in 2021, I'm so excited. Yeah, that's yes. Because when we started on this journey, I looked up all the stats and one of the things that I can't find again. I tried to look it up the other day too and I was like, where the fuck is this? Because I was going to send it to somebody, I can't remember who now, and I couldn't find it. I can't find it now, but I'm going to say that it's real and I didn't <laughs> make it up because there's no reason I would have made this up. That most podcasts that start don't make it to 10 episodes because it's a lot of fucking It's work. a lot. I can believe that. So I get it, but we're here. Yes, we're here. Yeah, we first, when we first started, I was like, I can't believe nobody makes it to 10. That's crazy. Like, no, whatever. No. And then in episode six, I was like, I totally understand. Yeah. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. We've committed to writing a term paper it every is. week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, it only makes me realize, like, I have not grown in any way, shape, or form because I'm just as big of a procrastinator as I was in college. Girl, same. I went to bed at four in the morning. Oh my God, I love you. I literally will, like, pull an all-nighter still to this day. Like, yeah. in my 30s, pulling all-nighters. Yeah for the podcast because I'm like, I took three days off just because I was like, mm, I don't feel good. And now <laughs> I, and now I have to rush everything because I'm an idiot. I saw this meme recently that said something to the effect of, I could have 10,000 years to write a paper and I'm still writing it the day before. The day before, <laughs> yes. Get it. It's so fucking true. I'm trying to be better about it. Is that one of your resolutions? Do you do New Year's resolutions or no? I used to. And then... You grew up and you were like, yeah, I can just start. I can, <laughs> if I had the willpower, I could just start any day I wanted to. I don't have to limit this to one day a year. Yeah, I guess I, I don't really buy by resolutions. I just try to be my best self, uh, which is a sliding scale day to day. As with us all, sure, yeah. You know, yeah, and not be too hard on myself. If whatever I wanted to do, I didn't do, then tomorrow's another day. We got that. So I, I guess I don't really... I, yeah, I don't subscribe to New Year's resolutions because Good. you can do them at any time. I completely agree, and yeah. I feel the same way. And I feel like I've never done them, really. Yeah, and I feel like whenever I've done them, it was because I felt like a pressure to have one because that's a thing people do. Yes. Like, for instance, two years ago, I was like, this is the year I am getting my acting career in order. Like, I'm not treating it as a hobby, which is I kind of was because I let my muggle job take over my life. Yep. Like this is the year that I'm buckling down. But it had nothing to do with January 1. It was just like, this is my life. And this yes. is what I want to do with my life. And it was, it worked out great. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> <laughs> but this came out of 2020. So, so there you go. You're welcome. It's not all bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear it was the worst year. It was fine. Great, we brought you <laughs> our magic into your ear holes. <laughs> So every week, every week, you get our magic in your ear holes. Enjoy. But because it is a momentous occasion, did you? If you got me another fucking, I did. I wouldn't say it's It's fine. It's fine. It's it's like this is not a. We're so cute. I can't even with you. Ah! I just see that it has fuck in huge letters on it, and I'm the happiest girl that could ever be. This is beautiful. And he got me like a little sparkly glitter clutch and it's so gorgeous and it says fuck in huge letters on it because it's my favorite fucking word and I say it all the time yes, because it's fuck, the best word it's so good and this is your friend's company yes. right so this is my friend uh Julie Malo makes these amazing <gasps> 
clutches. It is amazing. So she also does custom clutches, which is this one. So I got, uh, we'll post a picture of it. Oh, we're definitely posting a picture. We're posting a picture of it. And so she, she started out doing, <laughs> she started out do, designing for Katy Perry. So a lot of her initial, um, oh shit. Yeah. It's when she was in Pratt. Oh my God. She, she was still in Pratt and basically reached out to Katy Perry being like, I think I should design for you. And she's like, cool, sure. So the really iconic looks of like the watermelon romper. Yes. She designed those. <gasps> yes. There was a banana peel romper. These were all Julie's designs when I she was like all of 20 that. in Pratt. What? Yeah. So she was starting that ass. Right? She's a fucking bamf and amazing. So she started her own line and then on a one-off, she took a lot of the shapes that she would use on the dresses that she was making. She put them on some clutches okay. and then it just went nuts. And off, she, sure. So she makes these amazing clutches. JulieMalo.com, J-U-L-I-E. M-O-L-L-O.com. She's amazing. There's so many cute things and they're not a bazillion dollars. You know, support local businesses yeah. and shop small. I saw your hot dog one yes. day, which was super cute too. Yeah, I have, a, I have so many that it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing problem to have. It's an like, amazing problem. It's good. So now you have a fuck clutch. Thank you so much. A fuck clutch. That is so, that sounds so dirty and I can't. That sounds like it should be in the Bloodhound Gang song. <laughs> like, right? Like, I'm going to take on your fuck clutch or something. Fuck yeah. yeah. Mm, I love it. I love it so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What better way to celebrate there was 10 years? Ten ten year, ten, we're going to be 10 years. We're not 10 years now. It feels like 10 years in a good way. It's a lot of work. Monique is a uh, soothsayer. I don't know if you know this. So right. she actually, uh, mm -hmm. she knows these things. I'm a time traveler. It's <laughs> amazing. I'm from the future. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> 10 episodes. Uh, too many, many more, my love. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Amazing. We're drinking these canned Jose Cuervo Palomas. So fucking good. They're, They're so good. They're dangerous. so deadly. They're amazing. I almost forgot to drink when we cheers, which is bad luck, but there you go. safe. It's okay. We got it. Very safe. Do you do the direct eye contact? I don't issues? give a fuck okay. about okay. any of that. Okay. I, that was a thing that I, I was chastised for not doing that one time. And now I'm like super aware of it because I don't want anyone to be offended ever. But I always feel like a crazy person because I'll just be like dead eye staring you the whole time while we're fucking cheersing. Well, so I'm pretty sure I was still a wee babe child, like maybe like a preteen. Okay. And I was very mousy, like not, the boys the were not child. after okay. me. <laughs> I did not have a million boyfriends. Yes. So I was in this phase when I think I remember someone pulling the shit of like, oh, you need to look in the eyes when you cheers or you're gonna have seven years of oh, bad sex. Sick. What? And I'm like, I'm like 13. I'm not having any sex. Like, <laughs> I'm playing with my Barbies because Barbies rad as fuck. Also, I'll just like not have sex for those seven years because I'm 13 and then like I'll pop in in my 20s and bam, fucking knock there it out of the park. That's kind of how it worked out anyway, so. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's such a weird thing to tell a little girl. Right? Very creepy. I mean, yes. We tell children creepy things all the time. Absolutely. All the time. The like, you're going to be a heartbreaker one day always gets me. I'm like, yeah. what's that? Ew. Or just every child programming of the 80s. Oh. Like they're like, this is acceptable for children. This is fine. According sure. to who? No one. <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Little Monsters? That movie was fucking terrifying. It's one of those, like, it sounds familiar. I'm sure I have no recollection it of that. It was the Savage Brothers. And the oh. whole thing was, like, there were monsters that lived under their bed that were in another world. And one of them kidnaps one of the brothers. Cool. And then they have to go and, like, 
and it's Daniel Stern, randomly. I, I haven't I seen this movie in like. Is. Yes, you do. He's one of the sticky bandits in Home Alone. It's Joe oh, Pesci. Oh, oh, okay. He's in everything. Okay, like, yes. Know. But you don't. The one who's not Joe Pesci. The one who's not Joe Pesci. <laughs> the one I know. Okay, so cool. <laughs> I'll just. But you don't realize it's him because he's like covered in blue monster makeup. Okay. But it's the most what the fuck traumatizing movie ever. I'm sure. I was traumatized by pretty much every movie as a child, so. They didn't make it easy for you to not be, though. <laughs> Roll Dolls, The Witches, the original one? Are you kidding me? I never watched it. No child should have watched it. <laughs> Angelica Houston is the Grand High Witch, like HBIC, head bitch in charge. She Fuck was yes. incredible. She was in everything. But do you know the premise of The Witches? Only because I've seen the trailers for the, for the new, new one. one. Yes. So they hate children. Yes. And children smell really I bad. I get it. Get it. Cool. Right? And they're going to, they hatch a plan where they have this potion. They're going to put it in chocolate and they're going to feed it to children. All the children are going to turn into mice in England and they're going to stomp on the kids and kill all of the kids. Wow. You know, light, you fun know, for the whole family. Cool. Yeah. A fun children's nice children's movie, movie book. Yay, cool. So they have this witch convention where the Grand High Witch, which is Angelica Houston, who looks fierce as fuck. I Damn mean, it's Angelica yeah, Houston. Yeah, of course. Can she look any other way? I don't even think that's possible. Yeah, I don't think so. Exactly. So they have like their people form where it's like we're around the people so they don't know that we're witches. Yes. So for most of them, it's that they're bald. So they take off their, they're bald and they have square toes. Oh. Which to this day, I cannot wear a square toed shoe because I'm like, that's a fucking witch. I'm not a fucking witch. I'm not doing this. This is how traumatizing this fucking movie was. Peep toe or nothing. Like, I'm right. <laughs> not allowing this. The winter is very difficult for me because I can't, I mean, I will rock a peep toe. Oh, no. It's just not my favorite because no. it's 20 degrees. It's freezing. So they have purple eyes, no hair, and square toes. So it's the convention. They're like, ah. hey, like get into your like witch comfy, comfy situation. So they take off their shoes. You see the square toes. You see they take off the wigs. But the Grand High Witch, no, no, no. She's a completely different situation. It's like a fake face. She like rips what? off her face. No. It's wild. And then they bring out a kid to test the potion <gasps> on. And you see the transformation of the kid to the mouse. And this is 80s, you know, practical effects. Yeah. It's the most traumatizing thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. Uh, that any child has ever seen in their fucking life. And they're like, yeah, this is for kids. This is a kid's movie. It's nice. You know, Heartwarming. the 80s, only the strong survive. This was very Darwinian, for sure. Even movies I loved as a kid, I rewatched later as an adult, and I was like, "Why this did, was weird. Like, why did I like this? Not even why did you like it? Why did the marketing execs be like, this is for children? Yeah. I kind of feel that way. Love it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Nightmare Before Christmas. I watched sure. that as an adult, and I was like, this is terrifying. And the fact that my little baby child mind ever was like, this is okay. I love this movie. This is so fun. That's why we're friends. It's crazy. That's why we're friends. Yes. Because I was like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm all about this. I'm yeah. on board with this. Oh, no. I love it. I, it's such a fucking good movie. But I watched, I remember watching it after years of not watching it as an adult and being genuinely a little alarmed You're for like, my childhood self. Not appropriate. Yeah, no. <laughs> and I was like, you fucking weirdo for liking this. Mm-hmm. Oogie Boogie Man. Still haunts my oh dreams. Oh my God. Still haunts my dreams. And when he gets his seams. Oh, stop it with the bugs. Oh, I can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, like, obviously that's the most disturbing part. I can't. Bugs. I can't. It's, As you so said, I've never, I can never put my hand in the... No, in, that's not no, happening. No, no, no. In, what was it, Temple of Doom? Fuck Ooh, no. no, fuck no. Indie, short round, it's been real. <laughs> Love ya. Sorry. It's a wrap. We're not going to make it to the last crusade. Like, <laughs> Sorry. It's, 
It's been fun. It's been real fun. <laughs> totally. Oh my God. I want to give a quick shout out because I took a Zoom bar class on New Year's Day and Lauren, who was doing the class and she runs this company called Sparkle Sweat Fitness because of course, that's yes. adorable. She called out our podcast. What? In the class. No way. Saying how that she's listening to the podcast <gasps> and she really likes it. So, Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's amazing. You guys should check out Sparkle Sweat Fitness. It's not just bar classes. They have yoga classes. They have Pilates classes. It's all Zoom classes, so you can do them at home. And it's super affordable. SparkleSweatFitness.com. Hey, Lauren. Love you, girl. Thanks for the shout Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I know. So you have a ballet bar in your apartment or something? No, or it's like just... you'll use like the back of a chair. Oh, okay. All right. So it's, yeah. So that's you a thing whatever. you don't need. Yeah. Equipment or anything, really. Yeah, like even sometimes with, if you don't have weights, they'll be like, get cans of soup soup. that's in your apartment. And I'm someone, I did ballet for several years. Don't be impressed. I was terrible at it. (laughs) I'm impressed. Stop it. (laughs) I was not good. But what I did get from ballet was two completely arthritic knees and ankles. So because of that, I can't do traditional high-intensity workouts. So things like bar are great because it's all isolated movements. And it's one of those things, if you watched a bar class, you're like, whatever. You're not even, yeah. You do it and you are dying. When I used to go to their studio, there would always be like someone who'd bring their boyfriend or husband along. And he was like, oh, this is like, whatever, I can just do this. And I like actually lift weights. Like you don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Do you even lift, bro? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And they would be dying at the end of it. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. I fucking love to see guys who've never done a yoga class before do a yoga class. Exactly. It's, oh, it's my favorite. So it's this kind of like the full leg shaking yes. shit because they're having to hold a position for so long and you're just like. And then you have all these other women who are like. It's like, oh, sorry, do you want me to like pose. flip my leg up over my head while we're doing this too? Or no? Whatever. Cool. No, but casual. Cool. cool. All right. So I do a lot of bar classes and it's great. And it's great. One, also because you don't, I don't like sweating. Sweating, I hate sweating. Yeah. So you don't really sweat in a bar class unless you want to go extra and like turn on the heat in your apartment or whatever. And just... But you're still doing strength training. But you're, you're doing still, strength yeah, training. So it does muscle. that tight. That's the move. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's just so you're tight, right? Tight, right? Yeah, girl. Nice. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lauren. That's thank awesome. Thank you, Lauren. Do you have a spooky story for me today? I do. But before I start that, I have Ooh. a couple of do clarifications. Yes, corrections. Please. So when Amy was talking about the curse of... Utsi? Otsi? Otsi, yeah. Yeah, Otsi's curse. I mentioned uh, King Tutankhamen. Oh my god, which I cannot. I'm so... <laughs> having to listen to it back. I edit it so it's not as crazy and I don't sound like I'm as stupid as I actually am in Stop this moment. Stop it, you're not stupid. But I, gen- I had so... Listening to me have to not know what you were talking about when all you were talking about was King Tut and you just were using, obviously, his given name. And so I was just like, I'm sorry, What? It's all good. And especially like if it's one of those things that you've seen it written, written. but never heard, which is definitely the case sure. with that. When you were saying it in my head, I was like, God, I need subtitles so badly right now. Like if I could just see this spelled, I feel like I would be... You would know what it was. A-OK. And I had no idea it went right over my head. No, totally. It's totally fine. So I had mentioned that there was a curse associated with it. Wait, your eighth grade memory did not remember all the details properly? I know, I was fucking terrible. Damn it! So here's the thing. So it remembered it properly, but the the facts of it are actually not true. Oh. So, so this is what happened. According to Wikipedia, when 
Tut's tomb was discovered and opened in 1922. It was a major archaeological event, obviously. That's why in eighth grade, everyone's fucking obsessed with it, yes. like myself. In order to keep the press at bay and yet allow them a sensational aspect with which to deal, the head of the excavation team, Howard Carter, put out a story that a curse had been placed on anyone who violated the rest of the boy king. Carter did not invent the idea of the cursed tomb, but he did exploit it to keep intruders away from his history-making discovery. So Smart, actually. Right, smart. Yeah. But here's the thing. There are instances of genuine curses, ancient curses, appearing on the facade of the tomb. Okay. Just not on King Tut's. Okay. And he just kind of manipulated that and said it was to keep people at bay and keep them away from grave robbing, which is what he was doing. Definitely. And to not. Yeah, yeah it's definitely what he was doing. Yeah. So when I said that it was written somewhere, that there was a curse that was yes. written on his sarcophagus or in the room, that actually wasn't true. He said that was true to keep people out. I got you. But there but, were other curses. But there were other curses in other tombs, just not that one. Gotcha. Facts. We both learned something. Look at yes. that. Yes. Always important to look shit up. The things you think you know yeah. from when you were a child might not be true. You might want to like take a minute and just like look some shit up. I have been misinformed on many things over the years that I was like, God damn it. I went so many years of my life telling people that was true and believing that was true and it was not true at all. Absolutely. So frustrating. So the other thing is that when I was saying my story last week about how Balenka only got nine years yeah. for, for incitement to murder, you asked what was the... In Australia, yes. what is the minimum? So I couldn't find a minimum. But Australia does have life imprisonment for murder. Okay. That does exist. So I just wanted to get those those two yeah. clarifications okay. out of the way. So this story that I am going to say, I first heard on Spooked Podcast, which Ooh, I love. Okay, yes, you turned me on to that. And this is one of my favorite stories. And the thing that's interesting is that I had no idea that this person that this story is about was from Miami or is Cuban. Oh shit. Until I did like the deepest dive into it. Amazing. And found that out. So part of me feels like this is very meant to be. Yeah, I think so. So I'm going to be telling you the story of Stephanie Arnold and my sources are Wikipedia, Spooked, the Spooked podcast, ChicagoIdeas.com, Medium.com, and OrlandoSentinel.com. Stephanie Arnold was born in Miami on July 7, 1971, to Cuban Jewish parents. After graduating from the University of Miami, Stephanie went into TV production. She first delivered groundbreaking television with Latin Access, the first nationally syndicated entertainment magazine television program focusing on Latin content in English. She was also the showrunner for syndicated and network shows like Deal or No Deal in Spanish for Telemundo. Over the course of her 27-year career, she produced the Emmy-nominated special, the National Puerto Rican Day Parade for NBC, the Emmy-nominated annual New York Magazine show for NBC, and the NBC syndicated show Hispanics Today. She was the Vice President of Development for Mindless Entertainment, which created The Surreal Life. Oh my god. All and right. my personal all-time favorite trash reality TV show, Flavor of Love. Oh, yes. And if yes. you think I didn't watch Flavor of Love on Hulu while I was writing the story after I found this out, you are sorely mistaken. <laughs> yeah, I would expect nothing less from you, Monique, honestly. Goddamn right. You it, do your due diligence. I did have to stop at some point because it's so engrossing, just the disaster of all oh, of yeah, it. Oh, yeah, you can't look away. No, and I was like, I need to write a fucking story. <sighs> Girl, thank you for Flavor of Love. Yeah. I'm <laughs> obsessed. Oh, my God. 
Stephanie also produced and directed the Premio Lo Nuestro nominated music video Tu Amor for Olga Tañón. She also produced Julio Iglesias's Baila Morena and directed the Telly award-winning Celine Dion video Sola Otra Vez, which on a side note, do you ever have a moment where there's something that you completely forgot about and haven't thought about in like 20 years and then one thing just sparks like a sense memory of it? Yes. So Julio Iglesias's Baila Morena did that for me. Okay. <laughs> I had completely forgotten this. So growing up, my mom's parents, my grandparents used to visit us every Saturday. Like clockwork, rain, shine, zombie apocalypse, they were visiting us. Yeah. And at the end of their visit, for some reason, I don't even know why, me and my brothers would ask our grandparents for a ride around the cul-de-sac in their car. As That's, if we'd never been yeah. in a fucking car before. <laughs> that seems weird, but I also kind of get it because that seems like a thing you'd be like, oh, it's a different car. Like, I'm with new people. Like, yeah. I guess. And it's like, it's a thing that I could even like smell like their car, their Oldsmobile. I can smell like the fabric of it. I can smell yeah. it like this. And the thing is, yeah. And the thing is, they always were playing Baila Morena by Julio Iglesias and like the 10th in their car. And the 10th time, it was like, why the fuck? is this the always song that's always yeah. playing because the cassette had gotten jammed in the cassette <gasps> deck and they couldn't get it out. So that was always the song that was the playing. All they could listen to in the car. Yes. Oh my God. And I had completely forgotten of this for the last 30 years, 25 years, until I saw those words. I love that. And I even asked my mom last night, I was talking to her, I'm like, do you remember that we used to do that? Like, what did you think? Yeah, we were just like, sure, they're going for a ride in the car. She was like, because it was every single time they came over. When they left, we had to go, go for a for ride, ride in the car. car. And she was like, I don't know, kids are weird. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. They Accurate. Are. Correct. So because of Stephanie's work with music, she also served on the board of the Florida chapter of the Grammys and the national board of the Latin Recording Academy. Holy shit. This right? goes for real. For real, real. Not yeah. for play play. Absolutely. In 2008, she moved to Chicago and left the business after meeting the love of her life, Jonathan. From that point on, the only thing she wanted to produce was a family. I stole that line from something. There's no way I would have written that. <laughs> I liked it a But line. I liked it. Yeah. I was like, I didn't come up with that, though. <laughs> that was, that I feel was like I need to give credit to somebody else. Almost. Yeah. It's one of those, one of the sources I mentioned. <laughs> I didn't write that line. <laughs> Jonathan already had a daughter, Valentina, from a previous relationship, but Stephanie said of Valentina, quote, she's not a stepdaughter to me at all, more like my own flesh and blood, end quote, which is so sweet. That's very sweet. Two years after they got married, Stephanie gave birth to their first daughter, Adina. A couple years later, to their delight, Stephanie and Jonathan learned that they were expecting a baby boy. One day, 20 weeks into her pregnancy, she was walking through Tribeca Park with her daughter, Adina, in the winter. She was pointing out a fountain to her and explaining how beautiful it looks when it's on with the water flowing. Then all of a sudden, in her mind's eye, Stephanie saw the fountain turn to blood and she felt a blood hemorrhage in her body. Stephanie said that it felt like all the blood was rushing out. So she rushed to the emergency room and when she got there, she realized she wasn't actually hemorrhaging. There wasn't even any blood. What? The doctor told her that she was fine and whatever she was feeling was just a false alarm. No. Stephanie said, quote, it's not a false alarm. It's a warning. Yeah. Yeah, wrong. Yeah, you just gave me chills. Right? Yes, for fucking real. Mm -hmm. She believed it was a warning. It was, it was reinforced, this belief, because the night before, while she was sitting at her desk, she got a vision. 
She said, quote, I saw my body flat dead on an operating table. I saw my body cut from sternum to pelvis and across the pelvic area, almost in a T, just cut wide open and dead, end quote. Oh my God. Can you imagine? I know. Like, uh, I would never sleep again. Basically. Oh, fuck. Shortly thereafter, Stephanie found out that she had placenta previa. WebMD says that placenta previa is when a pregnant woman's placenta blocks the opening of the cervix that allows the baby to be born. As your cervix opens during labor, it can cause blood vessels that connect the placenta to the uterus to tear. This can cause severe bleeding during pregnancy and delivery and put both the mother and the baby at risk. Nearly all women who have this condition will have a C-section to keep that from happening. And if you saw Holy the Nick, shit, yeah, it's terrifying. Basically, if you watch the Nick, I don't know if you ever saw it. We have talked about, about it multiple times and you've recommended it to me and I keep being like, I'm going to start this. It's and so then good. it's fucking four weeks of Survivor. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't be, don't be ashamed of your shit. Damn it. You love Survivor. I know. I That's love amazing. it so much. Oh. But in the first season of The Nick, Placenta Previa is a running... It's, oh. it's, a, it's a plot point because it takes place in 1901 where this yes. was still a thing that was very much killing women on the regular. Yeah, of yeah. course. Her doctor told her that the risk of death was very low. Stephanie's husband, a science-minded economist with a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and a former Air Force pilot, didn't put any stock into Stephanie's visions. And he thought that it was just pregnancy jitters. Uh, go fuck yourself a little bit on that I one. mean, like, super go fuck yourself. Love you, <laughs> but go fuck yourself. It's pregnancy jitters, like, okay. Girl. Sure. But Stephanie's visions continued. She recalled, quote, I'd be grocery shopping and be in the aisle, you know, getting the flour as I was making bread that night. And all of a sudden, I would see the Sabbath dinner table and the mother's seat would be empty. The next day I'd be walking and I'd have a flash of my burial. End quote. I can't imagine any of this. No, I don't even know how I would handle this. I, uh, <laughs> like, would you say goodbye to your family? Like, I don't even know how I would handle this. Yeah, I don't know how I'd handle this. You know, I have, like, my little, like, weird feelings of things. Yeah. But it's never this. You're having fucking visions of your own death and seeing yes. yourself on a fucking autopsy table, basically. Just cut open. No. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. She saw herself lying dead in a shiny coffee-colored coffin, wearing her husband's Air Force dog tags. Next to the casket, Jonathan stood crying with their daughters, with their newborn son Jacob in his arms. <gasps> she continued to have these flashes of life continuing without her. She said, quote, I was looking at a ticking time bomb that was going to go off the day I gave birth, end quote. And Stephanie was going to do everything in her power to try to stop this. She said, quote, this was a sense of foreboding. This was an overwhelming screaming at me. I need to do something. To put it in perspective, if you were on an airplane and it was crashing, you would do anything in that moment to save your life, rational or irrational. So even though I was sounding irrational to the people around me, I was trying to do everything to get off this freight train, heading straight to a brick wall, end quote. Fuck. Right? Yeah. Ugh. She told everyone she could that she was going to die in childbirth. She told <gasps> friends, family, even baristas when she would order coffee. Fuck, I would too if I was, that's all I would be assessed with. I'd be like, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to die. I yeah. can see it every day. On Facebook, she posted, if anybody <gasps> has my blood type, I'm going to need it. When she told doctors of her concerns, they ran every test. She had ultrasounds, blood tests, and everything that she was afraid was going to happen kept coming back negative. The baby was fine. 
Throughout her pregnancy, every week she would meet with the gynecological oncologist and would tell him that she was going to need a hysterectomy. Jesus. And he brushed her off as spending too much time Googling. Which, okay, it's does fair. happen. Like, for people, sure. Yeah. I mean, you Google you get, like, any symptom. Oh, dude, I thought you I have cancer. I thought I was dying like 17 times. Yeah, girl. Already. The real This myth. month, are you kidding me? <laughs> Jesus. We're three days <laughs> in. Son of a bitch. She even met with a psychologist and again insisted that this was going to happen, but everyone just thought she was crazy. Oh, that's so infuriating though. Oh, I know. This poor one. Stephanie said, quote, I felt alone through the whole process. Nobody was believing me during this time and it was up to me to do something. I just felt very, very alone. And yes. Oh. I was like, you're so vulnerable and like, you're pregnant. Your you're hormones pregnant. are crazy. Everyone knows your hormones are crazy, though, so they're obviously chalking up that. They're like, oh, you're just fucking hormonal. You don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Crazy pregnant lady. But and it's like, fuck you. I know this what's is happening. Deeper. Yes, yes, there's something more here. Stephanie was steadfast in trying to figure out what she needed to do and who needed to be in that operating room in order to save her life. With her C-section only five weeks away, Stephanie had gone to every doctor she could think of, but she didn't feel like she was getting through to any of them. At that point, her OBGYN suggested that she have a consult with the anesthesiologist. On the call, Stephanie asked the anesthesiologist what happens when her placenta previa turns into an accreta and she needs to have a hysterectomy. So what's an accreta? We're going to find out. Uh, <laughs> if you were like, hey, I don't know what that is. Monique, you're using a lot of big words right now. I got you, boo. <laughs> during a normal delivery, the placenta detaches from the uterus during the last stage of labor. With an accreta, the placenta is tightly attached to the uterine wall and does not separate naturally during delivery, causing several complications for the baby and the mother. Okay. So it just won't come out. It won't come out. Yeah. Which is why... Which is bad. You need it to come out. So You need it to come yeah. out, and usually how you get it out is a hysterectomy. It's getting rid of all of it. Oh, shit. Yeah. Stephanie said that the anesthesiologist was taken aback by the question, but she assured Stephanie that they were aware of her condition and that she was in very good hands. At the end of the call, the anesthesiologist said that she hoped their phone call had made her feel better and put her mind at ease. Stephanie sat there for a moment, let out a sigh, and said, it is what it is. <gasps> Chills. Oh, that, like, just resignation to your fate of like, just, like, I mean, no, no one's, one's believing me. me. And like, I'm trying not, everything. And it's, I'm asking all the right people, and they're all just telling me everything's fine. There's and you know nothing. it's not. Yeah. Mm, vibes. All about the vibes. Stephanie's husband commuted from their home in Chicago to his office in New York, which like, oof, oh my God, commute, right? So most weeknights, Stephanie was by herself. After she would put the kids to bed, she would be in her living room on her laptop and write goodbye letters. <gasps> That's heartbreaking. And like, because she knows. And no one's believing her. So you can't just be like, hey, I'm going to say goodbye now because obviously yeah. you know what's up. I've told you this is right. going well. She said, quote, Every time I started to write something to Jonathan, I would break down crying because I knew that whatever letters I would write would be something that he would be holding onto for the rest of his life and continue to read. And I wasn't being poetic. I was scared. I tried to write letters to each one of my children, including my unborn child. And I thought, where do I even start? It's the pain of not being there to kiss a boo-boo better. It's the pain of not cooking a family dinner and having Thanksgiving around the table, end quote. Which, Ugh. 
I mean, if that's not the realest shit you've ever fucking Fuck, heard. dude, yeah. It's the little things. It really is. Like, exactly. you can say all of the big, momentous things you want to say, but it's the day-to-day. -day. It's showing up. Yeah. Do you know Brene Brown? It sounds very familiar. She, uh, she's like a shame expert, but she does all these, like, self-help. We talked about yeah. this one time, and you recommended, I want to say, like, a... Oh, A Call to Courage. Yes. Which is her, her Netflix special, which is incredible. Oh, my God. It's yes. life-changing. And everyone on the planet should watch it. But she says a thing of, because she's a shame and bereavement expert. Okay. What an interesting job to have, honestly. Yeah. yeah. And she had said something about how people are always focused on like these amazing moments and making these huge moments and these grand moments. And that really it's the little moments that count. And she talks about the story about this couple had this like two year old who would always slam the back door whenever he came in from the yard and the kid passed. And in the time after that, his parents were like, I would give anything to hear that, to hear that, yeah. that it was, it wasn't the trips to Disney world. It was things like that that yeah. really mattered and they held on to, you know, Ugh. oh God, the realness. Yeah. A week before her scheduled C-section, Stephanie was making breakfast for her daughter when she went into labor. She strapped her daughter into the car and they drove to the hospital. As soon as she got there, the nurses hooked her up to the monitors and told her to relax. But Stephanie knew in her soul that once the doctors wheeled her into that operating room, she wasn't coming out alive. The clock was ticking down and Jonathan still wasn't at the hospital and she was afraid that she was never gonna see him again. That's when Stephanie's doctor came into her room and told her that it was time. Jonathan wasn't there, so she texted him what she believed would be her final words to him. No. She said, quote, you've made me the happiest woman in the world and please take care of this baby. Be a great father like you are, but not just to our two girls, but to Jacob as well, end quote. And Jonathan just wasn't getting what she was saying or what was happening. Yeah. And he just asked her where, where he should meet her. And she responded, quote, eighth floor recovery, hopefully, end quote. <gasps> the chills are off the chart. In this story, like, I, I love this. This story's out of control. I'm obsessed with this story. So her two-year-old daughter, Adina, as I mentioned, was with her at the hospital so Stephanie made it a point to put on a brave face and she had a smile from ear to ear. And when the doctor came to take her away, she hugged Adina and just like kissed her a million times. Aww. And you know, she like waved goodbye. But as soon as the gurney took the corner out of the room, Stephanie just broke down sobbing because she knew she was never gonna see Adina again. Oh. The concept of pregnancy and giving birth is so scary and horrifying to me, just yes. as it is, like on its own. And then on top of that, you're having all of this no, visions and premonitions. God. Oh my God. I couldn't imagine. Oh my God. Once in the operating room, the nurses prep her for surgery. They strap her arm to the bed and they put the curtain in front of her face. And all the while, this pulsating of her heartbeat is just ringing in her head, getting louder and louder like a bomb that's about to go off. Of this moment, Stephanie said, quote, at that point, I was done. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. I can't escape this, end quote. The doctors begin the C-section and they successfully deliver baby Jacob. Moments later, Stephanie's eyes roll to the back of her head and she starts gagging. <gasps> Stephanie had an amniotic fluid embolism, a rare and often fatal condition where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream and if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into a type of anaphylaxis and in most cases you don't survive. Holy fuck. She starts convulsing and seizing, then she flatlines. <gasps> The doctors call the code blue and the doctors and the nurses are all scrambling to revive her and they bring in the crash cart with extra monitors and extra blood but the crash cart doesn't work <gasps> stephanie was losing blood quickly and time was running out they bring in a second crash cart 
After being dead for 37 seconds, the monitor finally picks up a pulse. <gasps> Fuck, dude. The doctors put Stephanie into a medically induced coma. During that time, Stephanie's placenta previa turns into an accreta, and the doctors have to perform a hysterectomy. Like, bitch, I fucking called this. Just like she saw in her vision. Fucking called this. Yes. No one in the goddamn listen to her. Fucking bullshit. Trust your gut. Trust your fucking gut. On the sixth day of her coma, Stephanie finally woke up. Her body had ballooned up to 200 pounds due to her kidney failure. And the first thing she saw when she woke up was her big, swollen belly, (gasps) making her believe that she was still pregnant and terrified that she hadn't even gone through it yet. Oh my God. But her husband told her what had happened, that she had given birth six days earlier and that she'd been in a coma ever (gasps) since. She's in a coma for six fucking days? Six days. Jesus. I know. When she was transferred back to the maternity ward, Jonathan arranged to have the nurse surprise her with her newborn so she could finally meet her baby. But Stephanie just freaked the fuck out and broke down crying, said, get Jacob out of here because she was terrified of him because she believed that he was going to kill her. Wow. Yeah, man. Oh, I can't even imagine that. None of this can I imagine. She said, quote, I thought I was going to die and stay dead. I'm alive now on the other side of it, and it's not the bliss and the gratitude. I was afraid of being, end quote. Oh my God. Because she's like, the shoe's going to drop. Like, it yes, I've been waiting. So it's, it's coming. Any second now. Yeah. Stephanie was suffering from severe PTSD, fucking obviously. Rightfully so. Jesus Christ. Following her harrowing ordeal, she found herself on edge and angry and constantly crying at everything. She had a husband, two children, and a newborn to take care of. She knew she needed to get better, not just for herself, but for them. So she went to therapy. And traditional therapy helped her get through the initial trauma. Stephanie visited therapist after therapist, and when she would tell them she needed to know how she knew everything that was going to happen to her three months before it happened, they would say, let's forget about that part right now and just focus on getting you over the trauma. Uh, no, let's focus on the fucking premonitions I was having that came true that nobody fucking believed. Exactly. Like, maybe let's focus on that for a second. Exactly. That everyone basically treated me like a hysterical pregnant woman. Yes. First of all, like, I would never let this lie. I never. would be bringing it up every fucking day at breakfast, like, mm-hmm. 7 o'clock on the dot. I'd be like, yeah. hey, you remember when no one fucking believed me that I was going to die? And in the exact fucking way that I said it was going to happen? Yeah. Ultimately, none of them could explain how she got those premonitions or what happened in the 37 seconds that she died before she came back to life. And that's when a friend of hers suggested hypnotherapy. Yes! Yes! Right, yes! You know all about it. I mean, I know. You know a funny story <laughs> on it. And Stephanie was not woo-woo at all. Oh, okay. At all. But she figured, fuck it. I'm no, going to try No it. one else is fucking giving you answers. Exactly. Like, trust the woo-woo at this point. And it was online, and she could do it from the comfort of her own home, so she felt she had nothing to lose. But when she told her husband, Jonathan, he was not the fuck about it, and he just didn't understand why she wanted to do it. Like, you need closure. I need to understand. Like, I don't understand why nobody understands this. I know. What? I just think it's that thing, at least in, like, Cuban culture, it's like an unpleasant thing happens, and you don't talk about it. Let's just move on. Let's Let's just move on. It happened. Let's move on. Yeah. We're not going to dwell. We're not going to... Yeah. And, you know, if you go through trauma or whatever, like, you need to talk about it. You need to process it, whatever. But it's something like my grandmother says, when you do that, she's like, no, it's just stirring the shit. It's like, no, you need to process it. There's one way in this process. I met somebody who's like that, though. Right. Where they're just like, nah. 
So that's what seems to be happening with Jonathan. Okay. So it turned out that the hypnotherapist was also a Cuban Jew. And Stephanie said that there was something about her voice that sounded almost identical to her grandmother who'd passed. Oh, shit. Right? Yeah. So that comforted her and put her at ease. The hypnotherapist told Stephanie that she could take her into the deep meditative states that would allow her to observe what happened in those 37 seconds when she flatlined. Because Stephanie had never been hypnotized, she didn't know if it would work or if she would remember anything that happened while she was under or if the whole thing would just be someone tampering with her mind. So she decided to videotape her session. The moment came when the hypnotherapist said, quote, do you think you're ready to go into the OR, end quote. And Stephanie said, let's try it. The next thing she knew, Stephanie was back in the OR, back to the moment where her heart was beating loudly in her ears. She's on the gurney with a curtain in front of her face and she's being prepped for surgery. They start administering the anesthesia and Stephanie begins to slip under. Stephanie said, quote, and then what I saw was spirit Stephanie perpendicular to my body. The only thing I can hear is the beat of the machine and the tapping of my finger on the top of the machine. My heart's getting louder. The beat is getting louder and louder in my head. I am tapping. My spirit is tapping physically on the monitor, counting down slower and slower and slower until they were going to take the baby out of me, end quote. The doctors delivered Jacob, and as they were delivering the placenta is when Stephanie's body begins to seize and convulse. When she flatlined, she said she saw her spirit shoot up like a shooting star. (gasps) The nurse jumped on her chest, broke her ribs, and began giving her CPR. The doctor kept saying, this can't be happening, this can't be happening. Wow. Stephanie said she could feel the scalpel hitting her skin, cutting and hacking away at her stomach, that she could feel everything and she can't breathe. Then she sees her grandmother and her uncle Marvin, both of whom have passed, standing above her, watching what's happening. That's when her uncle says, quote, you always knew what to do. You told the doctor what was going on. You need to go back, (gasps) end quote. And you can actually find these videos. Really? Yes, it's on her website. Of her hypnosis session? Yes, and she is freaking the fuck out, sobbing, clutching her stomach it's very visceral it's she's very much wow in it and like talking about like seeing her eyes roll in the back of her head like it is very intense that's really interesting because that was my one thing with many lives many masters is like there you can't hear the audio tapes anywhere as far as i know and all of that's very hidden because it's doctor patient confidentiality yeah. but oh i and, love the idea that you can go online and just see them yeah and in the spooked podcast uh, episode they play they play the audio of it and it's it's very it's very intense yeah so she's sobbing she's clutching her stomach she's going through this whole thing and the hypnotherapist brings her out of it when she's done with her therapy session stephanie said that she felt such a sense of relief and that a lot of the pain had been released from her chest but because she was doing this hypnotherapy session at home jonathan had heard her screaming so he rushed in to see if she was okay Stephanie showed him a recording of the session and he watched it for like five seconds and then closed the computer and told her that he wanted her to stop this therapy because it was hurting her and re-traumatizing her. And she told him, quote, I feel better. I feel a little more connected, like I'm connecting the dots of what happened. And he looked at her and replied, quote, how do you know that any of what you said was true? It could be an episode of Grey's Anatomy in your head, end quote. And while, Ste- 
fuck yourself, dude. I know. And it's that he's a fucking economist. He's like a numbers practical fucking dude. And Stephanie's pissed as fuck at this reaction, which absolutely. Yeah, she should be. And while she was super pissed at her always logical husband's response, she knew he had a fair point. So Stephanie called the anesthesiologist that she had spoken to on the phone prior to going into surgery, who was in the OR when she died on the table, and asked what it looked like when she went into cardiac arrest. The anesthesiologist said, quote, it wasn't like a normal cardiac arrest. It was like you were having a seizure and you were gagging, end quote. So Stephanie pulled up the video of her hypnotherapy session so that she could hear it and cued it up to the part where she sees herself starting to seize and convulse. So she plays it for her. And Stephanie asked the anesthesiologist if it looked anything like what she was describing. The anesthesiologist looked in horror and said, it looked exactly like that. (gasps) Full body chills. Then the anesthesiologist told her that when they had their initial phone call, Stephanie had said something to her that would haunt her forever. It is what it is. And even though the anesthesiologist had told Stephanie not to worry, she had a gut feeling that told her This woman has had a baby before. This is a woman who's speaking very clearly about what's going to happen to her to the point that she sought out specialists to save her life. After they hung up, the anesthesiologist flagged Stephanie's file for delivery day and made sure to have an extra crash cart (gasps) ready with extra blood and medical supplies just in case. Fuck yes. Good on that girl for looking out and being like, this woman actually doesn't seem crazy and Mm -hmm. seems genuinely concerned. Like maybe I should just take a few extra precautions. Yeah, because the first crash cart didn't work. Yeah, fuck. Mm -hmm. Stephanie said, quote, the only reason I'm alive is because they had the blood and they had the crash cart available because she flagged the file. That is 100% what saved my life. Wow. That conversation completely validated everything for Stephanie. And she realized that she didn't need to be afraid of her premonitions, but she still wanted to convince her husband that what had happened was real, or at the very least, get him to talk about what had happened to her. She tried to get him to talk several times, but he would always brush it off and say he was fine. And when Stephanie would push back, saying that she knew he wasn't fine, he would say, quote, I think you're just trying to get me to say something and be emotional, but I'm okay, really. The crisis averted. Now let's move on. Let's move on with our lives, end quote. But Stephanie knew her husband and knew that toxic masculinity is a hell of a drug, clearly. Yeah. So one evening, she was sitting at Jonathan's desk, tidying up when she found a small prayer book with paper stuffed in it. She opened the book and saw a folded piece of paper with numbers and mathematical equations on it. While she was in the coma in the ICU, Jonathan, ever the practical economist, was calculating how many amniotic fluid embolisms happen in a year, between one and 12 cases for every 100,000 deliveries, how many are fatal, and what the odds of Stephanie surviving were. And then there was another piece of paper. When Stephanie opened it, she realized Jonathan had written a letter to her. It read, my only love of my life, I'm sitting here in the still of the night, listening to the machines beep around you. You look like an angel, which devastates me. What am I to do if you're gone? How will I ever reconcile this to our children, to myself? I should have listened more. I should have been there, if for nothing else but to hold your hand. I should have prayed for you. Rabbi told me this is a test of faith. If I had been tested, why isn't this happening directly to me? Why to you? What did all of this mean? How did you know? I can't lose you. I'd be a shell of a man if you died. Please don't die. I don't. And he stopped mid-sentence. 
Later that day, he'd come home from work and he put the kids to bed and Stephanie approached Jonathan while he was watching TV and told him that she had found his letter. And he brushed it off saying, what letter, what are you talking about? And Stephanie replied, the one that was in your prayer book. And he just said, oh. And Stephanie knew her husband and knew that she just wasn't gonna get anywhere with him talking to him like this. She was standing behind him and he was watching television and she saw that he had his cell phone next to him. So Stephanie decided to send him a few texts. Stephanie said, quote, I had tried to have so many conversations and I think it was easier to have him answer in black and white without having a big emotional conversation. Just ask straight questions to get a straight answer than to look into his eyes and have him answer me directly that way, end quote. She texts him, do you believe that I can see dead people? He responded, yes. Then she texts, last question, do you believe me? And with tears rolling down his face, he responded, yes. Oh. Today, Stephanie serves on the board of directors for the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation, speaks on patient advocacy to organizations like the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses. She has raised money for Northwestern Memorial Hospital's Prentice Women's Hospital. She was named one of today's Chicago Women's 100 Women of Inspiration, who in addition to speaking on patient advocacy, talks on the importance of blood donation. In 2017, Stephanie published her first book, 37 Seconds, detailing her extraordinary experiences. It won multiple awards, including the Reader's Favorite Gold Medal and has become a national and number one Amazon bestseller. Stephanie said, quote, I have told many stories in my career. I just never thought the biggest story I would tell would be the most personal one, end quote. She's been invited by some of the most prestigious universities and media outlets to speak about her experience, helping to enlighten medical professionals and patients to her message of, if you sense something, say something. To this day, Stephanie still has visions. Ooh. And that is the story of Stephanie Arnold. I loved that. Right? So fucking good. Oh, so good. It's so good. Oh, that had like so many times, too many lives, many masters, it which did. I loved. And it was just, that was really interesting. Yeah. And something that she, that I read in an interview is that when the publishing house that picked up her book, this was around the time that heaven is for real and a lot of like people who were dead and then they crossed over yeah. and then came back. Books and memoirs were yeah, linear death experiences, experiences were were coming up, and the publishers were like, "Great, this will this will compete with that," but people were like, "Oh, but you don't talk enough what it was like to be on the other side." I was gonna ask, does she really like say anything about any, besides seeing her Not family members really. or relatives? Yeah, but. The interesting thing that happened is that her book resonated not with just everyone, but it resonated with medical professionals yeah. and with skeptics. So it was a completely different demographic that related to the book that she says that she hears all the time from anesthesiologists and doctors coming to her and telling them about their experiences of like feeling a thing and there's no logical reason why they should feel this thing, but they felt the thing and, and they, they acted on it and they knew and then it worked mm. out that way. Yeah. If you sense something, say, say something. I love that. I love it. Ah, oh, that's so fucking good. It's so fucking true, too. Yeah. Have you ever been hypnotized? Have I asked you no, this before? No, I'm okay. dying to. Oh, my God, yes. Dying. Yes, that's why I was so interested. Like, she got hypnotized via... via... Like, Skype or something. Okay, from a therapist, though. Like, a therapist. Yes, yes, okay, yes. Okay. And then she eventually would uh, started doing sessions in, in the same room with the okay. person. Yeah. 
crazy. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah, I would love to be love to be hypnotized. One of the like orientation things to do during my first week in college mm-hmm. was hypnotist show. And I feel like everyone kind of had the same feeling about it, which was like, like, what are we gonna go to a hypnotist? Like, <laughs> like what we have better things to do? Like, I'm gonna find a party, like, fuck it. It was one of the most fun experiences I have ever had, and one of the most entertaining things I have ever fucking watched. And I'm sure, like, everyone was like, they're faking it. They're just, you know, what, they can obviously hear the suggestions. They're just playing along. But, like, no. I watched people who I know for a fact yeah. would never do shit do shit that this guy told them to do just because he said it. I feel like one of the things at the end was one of these kids had to shove like a whole loaf of bread down their pants and they weren't allowed to realize that the bread was in their pants until way later. Until they specifically just crossed the threshold of this building sure. that we were in. So everyone is like, after the show's over, everyone's coming up to him and like, hey buddy, like how's it going? How you feel? He's like walking around with literally a huge loaf of bread in his pants. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's like, why is everyone talking to me? Like, ha ha ha, okay, like, it didn't work. Why are you guys, yeah, like, relax. Yeah. all over me right now? Settle down. And they were like, no, like, come outside. Like, come on, we're just, like, gonna go. We're gonna go outside real quick. And then literally as soon as his fucking foot crossed the door, he had the, like, whole body defeated, fuck, I have a fucking loaf of bread in my pants realization and, like, had to take the loaf of bread out. I love it. It was so fucking entertaining. And I, I was so that. skeptical about it. And watching it, I was like, there's no way. There's no way any of these people could fake this with this level of no. convincing me. Oh, I love that. I love mentalists. I love magicians. Oh, I, I, love, love magician I love too. all of it. You know, at some point in the future, we got to plan a trip to California and go to the Magic Castle. Fuck yes. It's the best. One, it's a black tie situation. Amazing. Okay. Which amazing. If you're gonna go to a fucking magic castle, Fuck you yeah, have that's to how you have to do it. I don't want to be a bunch with a bunch of tourists in fucking exactly. tiny Bahama shirts and flip flops. No. And you have to Get out of here. you have to either be a member or be invited by a member. Ooh. But I have a connection. <laughs> uh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I don't know anyone. You're I just very know well people. connected. Shut I know up. People who you know, know people. so many people. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So just one thing. If you've ever been to the Magic Castle, it's amazing. And there's different rooms and there's different magicians. And they'll do things like card tricks or love it, love all, it. all sorts of level of stuff. But in one room, kind of like that. Because it's a house. Yeah. And you just go in different rooms. And there's like the cocktail bar area. And there's a piano that is played by a ghost, I believe, named Irma. And you just request Amazing. things and it starts playing. So uh. I went there with some friends and one of them was like, requested like some classical situation. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, whatever. And I'm like, hmm. I'm like, that's great, but let's see if this is like for real, real. Like request something weird that it's not going to fucking know. So I requested uh, Exit Music to film by Radiohead. Yeah. And it started playing. Shut it. up. And I, was like, I'm so, and I was like, if I just hung out all night, with this piano, this would be the best time of my life. Fuck people. Who gives a shit? Give me and a then, piano any day. And then the magicians were incredible. It, oh, we're going. I'm, that sounds amazing. No, I said it's happening. Yes. We're planning a trip. Fuck yes. Oh, oh so I can't good. wait. I hadn't heard of that before. <gighs> well, you kind of have because you've seen Arrested Development. Yes. So the Gothic Castle is, is essentially a okay. magic castle. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. Tricks are for prostitutes, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's an illusion. <laughs> oh. oh, so good. Such an amazing show. Oh, yes. So I have refilled, or not refilled, I've just gotten another Paloma. I'm ready for the true crime. You're ready? I'm preparing myself. Brace yourself. Yeah. I don't know if you'll need that much. Okay. I didn't go, I didn't go too, too crazy here. 
So this is one of those stories that I so rarely get the chance to bring it up in conversation. Mm. Unless for some reason someone starts talking about antivirus software or hammocks, which don't come up nearly as often as you might think. But trust me, if there's an opportunity to work any of this information into a conversation, I fucking will, I like that. without hesitation. So in our discussion of documentaries, did we ever talk about Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee? We did not, but I have seen this. Have you seen this? Yes, girl, I'm here for it. Are you ready? I'm fucking ready. All right. I'm here for it. I'm so excited. But to be fair, it was only like in the last year. I don't, oh, know, okay. how, I don't know how long it's been out. I think 2016 it came out. Okay. So I remember seeing it closer to then. So I actually rewatched it in preparation for this mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. read a bunch of articles. So sources, obviously, the Gringo documentary, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee by Nanette Burstein. Wikipedia, gizmodo.com, theguardian, jacksonville.com, independent.co.uk. So if you're thinking, John McAfee, that name sounds really familiar. Mm-hmm. That's because, yes, it does. You're probably familiar with the McAfee antivirus software, which I'm pretty sure came pre-installed on every computer I've ever owned. And yeah. you're obviously familiar with it from there. As you've probably guessed, John McAfee is the computer programmer who created McAfee Antivirus and the self-proclaimed god of computer security, which is literally how he described himself. What a, um, what a, a humble... Dude. What a humble narcissist. Uh, what you may not realize is how much fucking crazy shit he was involved with after that. As you can imagine, the software company was incredibly successful, and by 1993, McAfee controlled 67% of the desktop antivirus market company had only 20 employees, but they already had $14 million in revenue. Since the company was so small and it was mainly his friends and family working there, it was like very informal with their company policies and like their culture at the company. So they would have like sex contests. Wait, what the fuck? They didn't go into this as much as I wanted to. This was like a very just like, oh yeah, they had a casual, casually dropped Casually that. mentioned. But yeah, they had this group called Little Foxes in the office where they would give points for having sex in different parts of the office. Oh. And it was like a running joke that there was this guy named like Windex's desk every time they came in because he was always known for having sex on it. How was this verifiable? Was they this an talked honor to point in... system? Oh, like, were they watching like did they have that's a third a party good. was there a... I was wondering that because it seemed like it was a security camera thing, but I don't know was there voyeurism going on? I have no idea. I mean, um, I would win in most offices. I was going to say, I literally <laughs> have a l- little note here that's like, hey girl. Hey girl, I see you. I know. What's up? <laughs> I have not had sex in any offices, so I would have really? a big fat zero. No, uh, no. Girl. I'm trying to think of an office I would have had sex in. I don't oh, think. you got to live your life. I'm not living my life. <laughs> not living my life. So investors wanted to increase his business, but that was not his forte, so they ended up buying him out. After his success in the antivirus market, he didn't retire, but instead turned to social network ventures, but they never really took off. In 2000, he exited the business world completely and he bought 280 acres of land in Colorado and opened a yoga and meditation center. He invited people to come, but didn't charge them. He wrote like five books on the yogi process and was super into it for a while. How much did he get bought out for? Do you know? It says somewhere. I did not write it down. This is one of those things that turned into a much longer story than I was anticipating it. And I was like, I'm going to leave quite a few details out and I'm going to get to like the the crazy, the crazy shit that went down. Yeah. So I do not know how much he was bought out for. Apologies. He seemed like he was super into it. Then it seemed like he kind of got like disillusioned. And Mm -hmm. he said after the fact, even that the books he wrote were bullshit. 
He, like, didn't really believe it anymore, I guess. Okay. He wrote five of them. He wrote five of them, though. Okay. Way to go into the deep you end. You go through of a phase. Track. Yeah, you go through a phase. I get it. So, right, like, you wanted to be Wiccan. I wanted to be a Wiccan. I love oh it. Oh, my God. Yeah, fun fact about high school Amy. <laughs> when I was having <laughs> moments of questioning my atheist sensibilities, I decided I wanted to be a Wiccan and I told my mom because my mom was always very understanding and accepting and always said look if you do want to explore religion or explore any sort of spirituality I'm always very supportive of that like your father and I don't personally believe that but it's up to you like I'm happy to drive you anywhere you need to go whatever you would like to do I'm never one to bar you from that and then I told her I wanted to be a Wiccan and I wanted to get a book about Wicca so that I could inform myself. And I remember her driving me to Barnes and Noble, getting the book, buying the book. Was this in like the Wicca section of Barnes and Noble? I have no idea. Probably. <laughs> there was definitely a Wicca section of Barnes and Noble. I'm so obsessed. probably. So she wasn't thrilled. Like if I'm in my memory, she's begrudgingly doing all of this. She's like, like fucking daughter. She's supporting me, but yes, but she's not like, oh my god, yay, you're gonna be a Wiccan. Like no, there's Let's none call of that. the corners together. No. <laughs> so she buys me the book, and I can remember just her at the counter turning to me and sighing and just saying, just don't tell your father. Like he's not, he's not gonna understand. It's gonna be a whole thing. Like it's just it. better if you hide the book and don't say anything to him. So I hid the book and I never said anything. To How him. long and did then, that phase last? Oh my god, I don't even think I made it through chapter two of that book. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It was one of the things it was like, you're gonna have to, one, get a bunch of shit, do a bunch of shit, you're gonna have to set it all up, you're gonna have to light candles, you're gonna have to find out which direction is fucking north and south. <laughs> you're gonna have to get naked in your backyard and oh, do some shit. sort of sky clad, like, praise to the goddess. And I was like, I'm actually good. I'm gonna stay inside and not do any of that and enjoy this little brush. With religion. With religion Thank that you. I took, yeah. <laughs> So not dissimilar. So not dissimilar to my foray into Tawika. Oof. <laughs> I love Oof, that. that one's a, yeah, that one's a tough one to swallow. So McAfee's wealth peaked in 2007 at $100 million, and then the financial crisis hit 2007, 2008, and his investments plummet. He said in an interview that he lost $90 million. Fuck. So he doesn't do the stupid thing and continue living how he has been living. He decides he's going to downsize and auctions off basically like all of his possessions. Okay. And decides to move to Central America where the cost of living is significantly less than in the U.S. So the documentarian's name, Nanette Bernstein, she's been emailing back and forth with McAfee for years yeah. after all this is going down. So she asked him if he moved because of the crash and he replied, I have been sued numerous times. I spread the rumors that I lost my money. It worked. She asked him if he was transferring the money into offshore accounts. He says he had over 100 trusts with his name appearing nowhere. And he's had bearer bonds in 14 corporations. Damn! It's one of those things like, it's not sketchy, but it's sketchy. It's sketchy as fuck. It's very sketchy. But it's one of those things that I kind of respect. Yeah. You know? Because it's like, you knew the loopholes, you knew how to work the system, you knew all the shit. And it's technically legal. Technically legal. So, have at it. Yeah. So McAfee moved to San Pedro, Belize after the crash of 2008 and bought a house on the beach and jokingly told reporters that he was going to be like Colonel Kurtz in Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Shit. You shouldn't be like gloating about that. No, that shouldn't be your hero. That shouldn't be somebody you right. like idolize. So San Pedro is seen as a major destination for people who try to run away from the U.S. And the U.S. even knows that that's where people like to hide. Right. <laughs> They're like, we, we see you. 
When McAfee first arrived, locals, including the mayor of San Pedro, described him as friendly. He was immersing himself in the local culture, inviting friends from the states to visit. So they actually liked having him there because he was good for tourism. He was helping feed the local economy by spending all his money there. Mm -hmm. They didn't really have a problem with him. Then he starts making all of these generous donations to the San Pedro police force. Ah, there it is. Yeah. Mm. Which is one of those things that seems altruistic, but nope. actually isn't. No, and is no, always there's a motivation behind that shit. Yes, it's definitely a ploy for gaining leniency at a later date. And the thing that's the craziest is, and it shouldn't be this way, but the reason you're doing it is because you know you're going to be doing doing some shit. sketchy shit. Um, yeah, because that's it's not like oh well, you need new cadet uniforms. I got you. No, it's sketch, sketch, etch a sketch in this motherfucker. A hundred fucking so percent. So preemptively, I got you. Well, that's fucking OJ. Yeah. Would have the fucking cops over for barbecues and shit over his fucking house. Yeah, let's take so, pictures, do autographs, whatever you need. Yeah. So that they would just let him beat the fuck out of his wife and be like, mm, but that's our friend. He's it's nice. OJ. Yeah. Mm. He's in movies. Ugh. No, it's fucking bullshit. And as the editor of the San Pedro Sun points out, if you really wanted to support a community, wouldn't you fund schools and libraries, things like that? 10,000 fucking yes. percent. Yes, you fucking would. Absolutely. I would not be arming the police force. Exactly. So instead, he donated money as well as equipment such as boots, stun guns, weapons, handcuffs, batons, tasers, vehicles. He even donated a million dollar boat to Belize's Coast Guard, just as a thank you for welcoming into their country. Because casual. Why not? You know. Sure. McAfee started several businesses while living there and described Belize as an entrepreneur's paradise because there are virtually no regulations on business. Oh, yeah, yeah. Super comforting right mm -hmm. off the bat. He started a ferry service as well as a business cultivating jungle plants that he hoped would be the building blocks for medicines of the future. Allison Adonizo, microbiologist who was doing her postdoc at Harvard, always had heard about Belize, heard there were amazing jungles, local healers, and she decided to go to Belize to check it out and ends up actually meeting McAfee while she's there. She tells him about her research, he's super interested, and within minutes of talking to her, he basically offers her her dream job. Shit. He told her she could continue her research and they'd make a business of it in Belize. She was obviously thrilled and jumped at the opportunity to become his research assistant. What they were supposed to be doing was using a brand new quorum sensing technique to possibly create new antibiotics. But he doesn't have the space for a lab right away and ends up having her stay with him at his beach house at first. She says she saw a lot of stuff when she was living there, such as a lot of meetings with different armed men. And once he told her he was writing a book while sitting next to two heavily armed men from the Ukraine. I mean, Jesus fuck. I don't even think, like, how could you be just casual and be like, yeah, whatever, I'm stopping by. Like, you told me to when there's two fucking armed dudes there. Yeah. No. Mm -mm. So in Belize in 2010, McAfee decides to buy some property on the mainland in Orange Walk, which is more in the jungle and not by the beach where his previous residence is. He starts to build a compound on the land, complete with a lab for his and Allison's research, which as we discussed with compounds, they're rarely ever a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Usually means you've got like a cult thing going on. Even the Kennedy compound. Sus as fuck. Yeah, doesn't sound good. Mm -mm. Does not sound great. Mm -mm. So he hires a bunch of people from Carmeletta Village to work for him. Construction workers, drivers, caretakers, etc. And he's paying all of these people way more than they're usually paid. Yeah. So everyone wants to work for him. Yeah. And it's one of those things that in those countries, it's they get paid like nothing. It's literally dollars a day. Yes. So someone's like, I'm going to pay you 150 bucks a day. 
like, oh my god, like, that's more money than anyone made. That yeah. They will do anything. It's wild. And not only that, but like, that buys your loyalty. I don't want that guy to go to jail where he can't pay me anymore. Like, I want to keep working for him. I want him of to be course. able to yeah. employ all my neighbors and relatives and shit like that, everyone in my village. I remember going to a grocery store in the Dominican Republic once, and it was a dollar and ten cents to buy 36 eggs. Oh my god. Yeah. Because it's just the, the peso there was so, like, it was just tanking. Deflated, just, yeah. Deflated that so just anything was or devalued. What's the I guess yeah devalued. Yeah. I guess so they're also getting paid on that kind of scale. Yes, and to them like a dollar and ten cents is like oh, I gotta think about that. You know. Yeah, and that's why they shine your shoes or whatever. You give them a dollar, they're like oh fuck, thank you. That like, makes, that makes a day. fucking yeah. difference. Yes, it sucks though because those are the people that are so easily taken advantage of. Ten thousand fucking yes. percent because they're desperate and because that's all they have going for them. Yeah. Yeah, and then there are people who come in and it seems like they're helping you out and they're just going to take advantage of you. Yes. Ugh. Yes. So he's very generous in the community. He's paying for people's water and electric if they need it. Holy he's shit. helping them with their homes if they need repairs or to finish their houses. So he's ingratiating himself with these people. And because this is a poor area, like we said, they fucking love him. Mm. Belize is said to be a murder capital, but it's also a heavily armed country. So people come with money and then they become targets. So McAfee starts getting phone calls telling him to watch himself. Oof. And his attitude starts immediately changing. People who work for him said they saw him getting more and more paranoid. He bumps up his personal security, so he has his own personal armed guards around him at all times. Mm -hmm. And these were locals he found, many of them with criminal records, which meant they had a difficult time finding jobs. But sure. McAfee would not only give them a job, but a gun right along with it. Oy, oy, oy. One of the security guards, Tino Allen, who Nanette interviewed, described him as the most frightening man. He had been convicted and sent to prison 22 times. Holy fuck. Yeah, so these guys are no fucking joke that he's surrounding himself with. You know, and this is one of those things, like, they're not being sent to prison for, like, tax evasion. Oh, no. These are super... No, no, no. Yeah. It's not like a little slap on the wrist. No, I got pinched for jaywalking. No, no, no. Oh my god. And I don't have any of the details of like what he was convicted of or what he was sent to prison of, but again, you can only imagine. Yeah. So in order to control Carmeletta, McAfee hooked up with the worst gangs in Belize. He had his personal security wear uniforms and he would travel with 12 to 13 armed security guards. Holy shit. Just excessive. Even like people around there were like, that's, that's a, lot. a little much. Relaxed. Dude. Yeah. McAfee even went so far as to set a curfew for Carmeletta and no one was allowed on the street after 8 p.m. He would what literally fuck? patrol the town and after curfew, threatening to kill anyone he found out afterwards. So he's just he's, like legit running this town. My next line is literally, he wanted to run Carmelita. Clearly. He even opened up a police station, but he didn't want any police there. Mm. He just wanted his own personal security to be the police. Oh, look at that. Yeah, very convenient. While he was seemingly generally well-liked by the locals, people were also afraid to say anything bad about him because not only was he a very secretive person, but he would also tell them he knew everything that was going on in the whole country of Belize. He even emailed the documentarian saying his people had taken pictures and recorded everything she did while she was in Belize and to the email attached candid photos of her and her crew setting up to interview people in Belize. Can you imagine, like, the intimidation tactic of oh, that? Oh, it's really fucked up. It's so fucked up. I know up. what you're doing. I see you. But it's that thing of watch yourself because I'm yeah. watching you now. Don't step out of line yes. because I'll know about it. And it was obviously somebody who was close enough to 
her and her crew to take pictures of their whole setup in the room that they set up in. Oh, so shit. So it was in the room. Yeah. So it's one of those things like this person literally was standing in the room with you while you were we setting up. Like, basically. yes. Very frightening. So McAfee finally moves Allison to Orange Walk, where the lab was, and she just tried to keep her head down and continue her work. He keeps bringing reporters to see the lab, and Allison tells him they don't have anything to show reporters, really. He's confused and frustrated, so he asks her to just make up batches of what she had already researched, or just put colored dye in so it would look good in photos, and they basically take a bunch of publicity photos of nothing. Allison wasn't comfortable and said it felt dishonest, but played along. He told her not to worry that it was just business and it would all work out in the end. Allison says McAfee kept getting weirder and weirder that he would go on rants. He talked about taking over the Belizean government and about his hitmen. Nanette even stops to clarify her, asking if he definitely called them hitmen and not personal security. And Allison assures her he would absolutely call them hitmen. Oh my God. He would talk about how he could hurt people or have them killed. She was beginning to get scared and she wanted to leave, but needed to figure out how. She finally confronted him and just laid everything out. She told him she didn't, I know. Which, good for you for laying it out, but like, No, girl, you make up some shit. My grandmother's sick. I need to get the fuck out. Like, you don't, I mean. Confront him? Ugh. Actually, correct. You should not have confronted him. Yes. Mm -mm. So she told him she didn't like what he was doing. She wasn't getting in her with her research. She missed her family, etc. They have a long talk. She's crying. She has a headache from the crying. She, I guess, tells him this at some point. He goes to the other room. He brings her two pills and a glass of orange juice. She says she took the pills and a sip of the orange juice, telling him it tasted weird. It tasted no, foul. No, girl, no. She even goes so far as to like make a little joke of like, haha, we live in Orange Walk and we can't even get decent orange juice because no, she's girl. still thinking nothing of this. No, girl, no. I mean, because, because to think of, it's just so unimaginable. Yeah. It's like, if I tell someone I have a headache and they come back with two pills for me, I would 100% take them. I wouldn't think anything of it. Yeah, I have a fucking bottle of Tylenol, extra strength in my fucking bag. Yeah. If you wanted some, it would be like, P.S. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. Yeah, no. Oh, God. I, this is where, like, my trust issues come in. <sighs> Girl, you're right to have trust issues. We're all right to have trust issues. Because this isn't some rando at a bar. This is your boss. This is your boss. Oh, my God. Ugh. Continue. She then goes on to say she only has flashes of memory of the rest of the night. She recalls seeing him standing over her naked. No. And she woke up the next morning sick. She was dizzy and dry heaving, and she says she just grabbed her clothes that she didn't even remember taking them off and went back to her house and locked herself inside. Oh, poor bunny. She says she sat in the shower crying, and that was when she realized she was bleeding. Oh, my God. She eventually gets up the courage to confront him, and when she does confront him, he acted like nothing happened. Obviously, because he's a sack of shit. Yes. He fucking drugged you and raped you. Obviously, so he's going to pretend that like, didn't happen. Like, my eh, bad, actually. Know. Yeah, you're right. I am a fucking rapist and a piece of shit. So she calmly says she's done. She's leaving. She just wants him to buy her out of the company. And in her own words, he went from zero to crazy in like two seconds. Mm-hmm. He called her names. He pushed her out the door of the Orange Walk compound. She ended up locking herself in the lab and started destroying the samples and any of the reagents that he could have used against someone. She managed to buy a plane ticket and email her dad before McAfee cut the power to the compound. He was pounding on the door, mad and screaming. He left, but came back this time with a gun. She hid under the lab bench and texted some friends that she had made locally, asking them to come get her. He eventually stopped circling the lab and her friends were able to get her out and she was able to catch her flight the following Thank day. fucking God. Oh my God. 
So she gets out, she gets safely back to the US. She contacts the FBI about what happened in Belize when she returns. And unfortunately, they have no jurisdiction in Belize and absolutely nothing could be done. McAfee claimed Allison left with all their samples and since he wasn't all that interested in starting over, he turned his focus on Carmelita and the immediacy of the human suffering there. He said in the past year, he had had 11 attempts to kidnap, kill, or rob him. But he knew these weren't personal, that people were just struggling and needed money to feed their families. So one day, McAfee gets word that these guys are gonna rob him. And one of the guys is named David Middleton. He was described by another Carmelita resident as a friendly guy and could usually be seen with his kid. David does actually break into McAfee's house and robs him. Since no one has ever broken into his home before, McAfee wants to set an example with him. Mm. McAfee asked his driver, Tom Manger, if he could pay three mean looking guys to rough him up a little. Tom finds the guys in Belize City and drives them up to Orange Walk. When Tom sees a cop nearby, McAfee reassures him saying, he's with them. When they show up at David's house and he sees them there, he bolts, running from house to house, jumping fences, calling out for help, running down the street. No one comes out, no one helps him. Desperate, he runs into the bush. They find him and they beat him badly. Oof. Quote, his whole face, full torture, steak knife, cut him up, taser him in the mouth, in the face. Oh! Then they take down his pants and push it on his private parts. <gasps> that guy was screaming for his life. Oh my God. End quote. Then they called McAfee, who told them he wanted to talk to David personally. They drag him up to the window of McAfee's vehicle to speak with him, and after five minutes, he drives off. They brought David back to the village in one of McAfee's trucks, pushing him out publicly to make a point. David yells for help, and he's finally taken to the hospital. Police came to talk to him, but he remained silent on the identity of his attackers, merely saying that two unknown assailants had abducted and beaten him. After slipping into a coma, he eventually died of his wounds. So it was now a murder investigation. But when his family tried to find out what happened to him, they were warned to stop asking questions and leave the country. Tom, McAfee's driver, was getting nervous. He had a vehicle that matched the description of the car David had been abducted in and was expecting to be hauled in for questioning any day. But he wasn't. So into the story comes Eddie McCoy. So Eddie was a close friend of David's and after his death, McAfee was afraid that Eddie would come and try to kill him for killing David. Mm -hmm. They called Eddie Mac 10 because that was his weapon of choice and he was described as a bad, bad man from a gang. Eddie wasn't afraid of McAfee because his brother was the military attache and a major in the BDF, which is why Eddie had never been to jail. McAfee described him as having an untouchable after him. He heard Eddie was coming after him, so he asked people he had on salary to look for him, but they couldn't find him. Mm -hmm. Eddie said he was hiding, growing a beard, getting disguised, and planning how to get rid of him before McAfee could get rid of him first. McAfee sends Tino Allen, one of his security guards, to find him, and the guy asks, you want me to kill him when I find him? McAfee tells him, no, just get him, bring him here, and make him talk. McAfee was also one to follow the keep your friends close, your enemies closer rule. Right. So he would frequently hire people who were out to get him just to get them on his, on his side. side. And on his payroll. Yeah. Yes. Now you're not my enemy, I'm paying you, we're good. So he calls Eddie up one day and invites him over to talk. Eddie agrees to meet with him, and McAfee says, I heard you want to kill me. Eddie's like, I heard you want to kill me. McAfee says, no, I don't want to kill you. So he says the best thing they can do is be friends. Keep in mind, he's agreeing to be friends with the man who ordered his close friend to be beaten, stabbed, and tased to death. But Eddie starts working for McAfee. Oh my god. I mean, that's one of those things that if I did that, I'd be like, I'm gonna make money and then I'm gonna murder this motherfucker. I'm gonna take his money, then murder him. Yes! You know? Girl, I love the way your mind works. <laughs> my heart that is Scorpio. Yes! That is a 100 fucking percent what you should do. 
I'm not just gonna take your money. No, like, and betray my friends. Fuck no. The memory of my friend. No. I am loyal to a fault. There's nothing wrong with that. It's one of the many things I love about you. Likewise. McAfee, obviously, as we discussed before, wanted to cultivate this image of a white man on the edge like Colonel Kurtz. His desire to live without limits was spreading into all aspects of his life. He says, and I quote, I live a lifestyle that might be over the line of normal behavior. It's a lot of fun. I get to hang out with cute girls who are scantily clad. Ugh. I do have teenage girlfriends. Ugh. And many at a time. Nothing illegal. They're well beyond the age of consent. Which is what it believes. Twelve. I don't fucking know. Yeah. I mean, I don't even want to find out because I'm just going to be enraged. I'm already enraged. From my reading and watching the documentary, it seemed like they were 17 at the youngest. But he's not 18 or 19. He's an adult. Oh, yeah. He's a grown man. He's a grown man. I'm pretty sure he's like in his fucking late 60s, early 70s at this point. He's like pretty, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So they're well beyond the age of consent, and he sees nothing wrong with it. And if you do, that's okay. Which oh, I thank do. You. Thank, thank you. For you. That. And I will continue to think that. Go fuck yourself. People close to him would say he had about five or six girls who would live at the house with him at a time. So he thinks he's fucking Hugh Hefner. Yeah. But with like a fucking personal security gang around him at all times, basically. Oh my god. Oh yeah. So one of the locals who owned a bar was one of the people who typically introduced girls to McAfee and he would tell them he knew a guy who would pay a lot of money to sleep with them for the night. One girl said he paid her $900 a day. Shit. McAfee used to have a guy just drive around looking for girls and that guy said he had introduced 35 to 40 girls to Holy him shit. over the course of this. So these are young women who were in difficult circumstances, who had horror stories from growing up in Belize and now here's this rich guy willing to take them in at minimum, what, she has to just lay there and he gives him 900 bucks? Yeah, exactly. I get it, but, ugh, girl. Fuck. Yes. He didn't explicitly force them into prostitution. A lot of, he started by helping them out with a job or by paying for school for them, and then he'd keep in contact with them, keeping an eye on them, which would lead to him talking to them on the phone and eventually dating them, and then they just basically become his kept woman at a certain point. Mm-hmm. He was very upfront with the girls. He told them that they weren't the only one. He wanted them to all get along and he would treat them all the same. The girls said he treated them very well, was very attentive and loving to them, even individually. Most of the girls stayed for the money at first. They loved living in the big house and having shopping trips and the general lifestyle that came from being with McAfee. But those who worked closely with McAfee and his girlfriends believed they eventually actually did develop true feelings for him. Mm. It's like Stockholm Syndrome. 10,000%. A lot of the girls said they had never had sex for money before meeting McAfee, Mm. which I believe they're teenagers most of of them. At this point in the documentary, which is my favorite point in the documentary, Nanette asks them what he would have them do exactly. And she interviews three separate girls in this documentary. And they all say that he would have them sit on this hammock, which had this hole in it. And then he would lie under the hammock so that they could shit in his mouth, literally. I remember this. You can never forget it, Monique. No. You can never forget it. If anyone brings up hammock in a conversation, I'm like, hi, hello, Amy (laughs) Traden, nice to meet you. Let me tell you some fucking shit. Literally. I can't not bring it up. It haunts my dreams to this day. So there's a lot of stuff that I'm like not remembering of it because I've only seen it the one time. And then when you were saying that they all said, and I was like, I remember there was a super weird fucking thing that's not 
sex. Yes. But it's sexual to him. That's super like, and all of them were like, yeah, yeah. this was what he was about. <laughs> yes. It was like the first time I had to do this, I had major concerns. Yes. Yeah. It's not like anal or like six to nine. No, no. Oh. And you know, and here's the thing. I'm not a king shamer. If everyone's on board and it's all consensual, Vaigonios, it's amazing. Yes. And you know, but it's one of those like I, I'm someone that whenever whenever I'm courting a gentleman, I have all of the combos of like what are you into yeah. prior to? Mm-hmm. Because I don't want that no to be surprises. Brought up on me. No, no surprises. Fuck no. No shade, no nothing. Like if that's what you're into, there are definitely people that would be into it. I am not that person. Though. And I am I, not for you. I'm not for you. You find someone who's who's into it. Yes. Fuck yes. But fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. I have a friend who a guy asked her if she was into water sports and she didn't know what that was. And she was like, water skiing? Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, hi, yeah, hello. That's pee stuff. You need to get the fuck out. Like, that's what that means. I didn't know any of that. Oh, yeah. She texted me and was like, hi, do you know what water sports are? And I'm like, pee play. What's up? (laughs) Basically. Yeah. No, I would have been like, are we going to like... No. Jet ski on the fucking... <laughs> you would have been sorely, sorely mistaken and very upset. Well, I'm a Pollyanna. That's like, I, I told you the story about when I got offered drugs on my birthday and didn't know that's what was happening. Yes, it's the cutest. So on uh, a quick little aside, just to show how naive I am about the whole drug situation, even though people are offering me drugs literally all of the fucking time. Because you're awesome and Thank they want to do drugs with you. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> it's a compliment. So it was Halloween a few years ago. My birthday's two days before Halloween. And I went to a Halloween party and I did the whole Day of the Dead makeup situation. It was awesome. It was amazing. Fuck yes. And it was a Halloween a few years ago when the Saturday of Halloween was the 28th. So my birthday's the 29th. And I went to this party with some friends and a friend of mine who went to this party lives in my neighborhood. So we went at the end of the party, we went to my neighborhood and I was like, I just want one more drink at my local watering hole so that I can have midnight to my birthday having my apple martini at this place. So we're there and you know, there's a few other people at the bar and at the end of the bar, there are these two women there and they find out it's my birthday. They buy me shots. It's lovely. I take the shots. I walk over to them. We have a lovely conversation back and forth. And then one of them goes to me, would you like something that's not alcoholic? (laughs) And I literally say to them, like a soda and they're like no and then i realized what was happening i'm just an idiot <laughs> no 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 you're a pollyanna you're I'm just pollyanna. you're not expecting that yeah i just i'm a pollyanna who believes in true love and doesn't ever do drugs so everyone wants to give me drugs and does not want to get peed on and i do not want to get peed on no 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 water sports for me thank you so I definitely do not want to shame anyone for anything that they're into. And I have my own little thing here, which basically said, here's the thing about the hammock. And I'm not shaming anyone for anything you want to consensually do, but I also can't not bring it up. It's just a thing that I know that I can't unknow. And now you can't unknow it too. And also it's a different of like, there's like the IT guy who's into it. It's like, live your dreams guys. But this guy's a piece of shit. So, and he wants to literally eat pieces of shit, oh apparently. But here's the even crazier thing to me. So the documentarian Annette asks one of the girls if McAfee ever had regular vaginal intercourse with her. And she said no. Yeah. That the poop hammock was the only thing he asked her to do. Yeah. 
Which, like, I get if it's, like, a, okay, I'm spicing it up on top, but, like, no. that's the only thing you want to do? Literally, I just what? thought of something that's so gross. Oh, please tell me. <laughs> I wonder if he asked them to, like, eat certain things. <gasps> Girl. Girl. I want to know, too. Because, like, you would think certain things would be better than other. You'd, you'd think or, he like, would, like, consistency and stuff, like, you God, know he didn't so let them eat corn. Gross. You know he didn't let them eat corn. <laughs> like, I'm just gonna say that. This is, I, oh my God. I always wanted to know too if it was like a special hammock. Like, was it just a shitty hammock that they cut a whole lot of? Or like, did he have somebody like sew it professionally? And there was like a special well, material it was made out of? Like, what was the deal? There's also the hammocks that are basically like macrame. Oh, that already have like, maybe it is that one. Yeah. Oh. I mean, but here's the thing. You're getting paid almost a grand. I actually would prefer that. Like, if I, could just, if I could just get paid to shit in someone's mouth and not have to ever have sex with them, like, you're not getting yes. disease. You're not getting pregnant. They're not being yes. discussed. You don't have to deal with them. It's not sex the reverse of them having to poop in your mouth. Like, yeah, yeah. I fucking mean, get it, girl. Here's my Venmo. Yes. <laughs> I will be there tomorrow. <laughs> Fuck. I can't though. I mean, oh. this is so gross. And he's garbage. He's garbage. It's more gross because he's garbage. And it's one of those things, whatever you want to do in your private life is up to you. Everyone, every party is consenting. Have at it. Live your dreams. Go for it. But here's the thing. Now that it's come out, I'm not going to pretend that it's your private life anymore. Like, no. no. I'm going to tell every single person I meet, whoever brings up hammocks, that John McAfee paid girls to shit in his mouth yeah. in this hammock. That is going down in conversation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's something I just think about randomly. I feel like every week or so, I'll just be like, John McAfee wanted girls to shit in his mouth. Hey man, this, do you know, he needed an OnlyFans. He did. That's what he needed. He would do well in there. Yeah. All right, I'll get off of the hammock now. <laughs> At that point, everyone's afraid of McAfee because he would kill you, basically. It's a fucking monster. Yeah, and this was according to a Carmeletta town council member, Elvis Reynolds. People wouldn't go to the police because he had so many of them in his pocket that it was basically pointless. McAfee said he just wanted to clean up Carmelita and to do it legally. Go fuck yourself. Literally. Ugh. And to do it legally, he hired off-duty officers to collect information for him. He even had an off-duty officer living on his compound, which he said was to deter burglars. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, of course, right? It's not sketchy in any way, shape, or form. He had the local police under his thumb, but couldn't penetrate the national police. McAfee felt untouchable. On April 30th, 2012, around 5, 5.30 in the morning, Tino hears, which is one of his guards, hears the dog start barking and sees police at the gate telling them to open up. Tino calls McAfee immediately. McAfee comes down to see 42 police officers in attack formation coming down the drive with automatic weapons. His security guards, recognizing the GSU or gang suppression unit, laid down their weapons because they don't fuck around. Mm -hmm. GSU is an arm of the police department dealing with the worst of the worst, and these are the police officers that pride themselves on being incorruptible. They are the special forces. They're not like the police. They don't care how much money you pay them. They come for one thing and one thing only, to search for drugs and illegal weapons. They surrounded the compound, broke down the door, and they even killed one of his dogs. They handcuffed McAfee and took him in for questioning. The GSU raided McAfee's compound because the intelligence that they had at the time suggested that he was mass-producing narcotics or some sort of psychotropic that he was selling. Shit. In addition to the legal guns they found, they searched the lab that Allison had worked in and found some bricks of white powder, but upon testing, they were not revealed to be anything that would incriminate him. 
He was taken to Belize City where he was charged with having like ex lax. Right. They put that shit in cocaine. I know. And like, hey, he has this proclivity for Oh my god, Monique. Yeah, girl. I mean, that's what I'm. This thinking. is all like I'm having a moment where like my whole face is static because I'm <laughs> Your piece the pieces together. are coming together and I'm like, oh, my mind is blown right now. Damn, girl, I'll put okay. you on the investigation shit. <laughs> he was taken to Belize City where he was charged with having one gun without a license. McAfee says it took the intervention of the embassy to get him out and that they were planning on trying to find a way to charge him while having an unlicensed lab. But since the lab was shut down 18 months prior, he said it was pointless. McAfee claimed he was targeted because he didn't donate to an unknown UDP Orange Walk politician. He said a week before the raid, he was asked to donate $2 million to the party, but refused. After his release from custody, McAfee brought the incident to the attention of the press, claiming he was terrified of retaliation from the government, that they talked about murdering him, his friends and family had been threatened, that they had talked about planning drugs and guns on him. Before the raid, he was already paranoid people were after him, and after the raid, his paranoia skyrockets. Mm. He decided Is he on drugs? Ooh, that is a very good question. So in July of 2010, shortly before Allison pulled the plug on their quorum sensing project and fled the country, McAfee began posting on a drug-focused Russian-hosted message board called Blue Light about his attempts to purify the psychoactive compounds colloquially known as bath salts. Ah, okay. Yup. There we have it. He wrote, I'm a huge fan of MDPV. I think it's the finest drug ever conceived, not just for the indescribable hypersexuality, but also for the smooth euphoria and mild come down. He described his pursuit of quote unquote super perv powder and warned about the dangers of handling the freebase version of the drug. He said, quote, I had visual and auditory hallucinations and the worst paranoia of my life. He yeah. recommended that the most effective way to take a dose is veal rectal insertion. Oh my God. I mean, he's into the butt stuff. He is hardcore into the butt stuff. But so drugged as fuck, paranoid as fuck. Yes. Got it. So he decides to leave Orange Walk and move back to his house on the beach in San Pedro. He's so paranoid, he tells Eddie that he saw guys coming out of the sea at his house with machine guns, so he had to hide. Jesus. He starts telling crazier and crazier stories. Eddie said he once said he saw fish people coming out of the sea. What the fuck? I don't know. But that was one of those things, like, that was weird, and it just, I feel like I had to include it as part of, like, yeah. you can see his descent into, yeah, yeah He's into madness demon. here. Yeah. So when he makes this move back to San Pedro, he brings all the girls and the bodyguards from Orange Walk back with him, which he did not have previously when he was living there. And San Pedro is not like Orange Walk. It's a tourist beach. So McAfee's just chilling on the beach with two or three armed guards at all times, which was disturbing not only to the tourists, but to the locals as well. Of course. And McAfee had quite a reputation in the neighborhood. Greg Fall, his neighbor, who was another American expat, said he was just a rich American terrorizing the neighborhood. Mm. Greg was very vocal about not liking McAfee, and Greg's father had heard from other people that McAfee didn't like Greg. Greg lived 600 feet south of McAfee with two vacant lots and a house between them. He had decided to retire to Belize, and since he had previously been in construction, he built and sold homes there. Greg used to like to walk from his house down the beach to Rojo Lounge. I feel like I'm bastardizing that, so Rojo. I feel like such a fraud when I do that, though. Are you like Hilaria? I am Hilaria. Hilaria. Hey. hey, girl. No. It's like I was born in Miami, so obviously I'm Spanish. Can't you tell? It's the same. Can't you tell? <laughs> it's fucking bullshit. Also, that's just how it's pronounced. Rojo. Rojo. That's fine. Uh, to eat and have a few drinks. But McAfee had several armed guards patrolling the beach, which included guard dogs. 
The editor of the San Pedro Sun said the dogs ran loose on the beach and described them as very ferocious dogs. Oh. Very loud, very aggressive with people. I hate it. I like dogs, and even I don't want to deal with that. Greg went to speak with McAfee about his dogs, telling him he had to do something about them, that they were disturbing the neighborhood. McAfee grabbed a 12-gauge shotgun and told him to get off his property. Greg talks to his friend, saying he has a problem and it's not going to go away. On November 8th, 2012, he filed a formal complaint against McAfee's dogs, and the mayor told him he talked to the police to go deal with it, but McAfee's buttered up the cops so much at this point that they're not going to do anything. Mm. So Greg Fall had had it with those dogs, and he said he was going to poison them. A day later, around midnight, McAfee's security informed him that the dogs were foaming at the mouth, and when McAfee saw them, he knew that they had been poisoned, and he immediately suspected his neighbor. He got his shotgun, and he said he was going to put them out of their misery. He did, and one of his girlfriends said that it was the only time she'd ever seen him cry. He had the dogs buried on the property the following morning. John's caretaker heard him say, quote, I'm going to kill his ass, end quote but thought that that was the end of it. On the night of November 11th, 2012, Greg was out socializing and drinking at the Rojo Lounge with a friend. They left between 10 and 11 and Greg went home. Greg called a friend after he got home saying he saw someone in his yard. The friend offers to come over, but Greg says, no, it's okay, he just wanted him to know. Greg was nervous and said he didn't feel good about it. The next morning, Greg's housekeeper found him dead in his living room. The cause of death was a massive trauma and brain damage due to a gunshot wound from close range. Fuck. Greg's father said his son would not have backed down. Quote, he had a short fuse. If he had a chance, he would have fought, but there was no scuffle, there was no sign. Mm. End quote. The editor of the San Pedro Sun said it just appeared that he had been basically executed. Detectives found a single 9mm Luger brand shell on the stairs leading to the upper floor of the house. A laptop and an iPhone were also missing. They have not been recovered. In addition to the gunshot wound, Greg was found with taser marks all over Jesus. his body. Yes. Which obviously was a huge part think, of the yeah. other murder, and he gave all of the fucking cops tasers. Yeah. Like, that was one of the big things he was known for, like, giving yeah. to the police of Belize. They began looking at McAfee, obviously, because he had said he wanted to get even with Greg for poisoning his dogs. McAfee acted surprised when his caretaker, Cashian, informed him that police were investigating a murder next door. When police came to question him, he hid. When asked why, if he was innocent, he didn't just submit to questioning, he claimed that he feared for his safety from the government of Belize, and if detained, was worried that he would just disappear. Oh, shut the fuck up. Fuck you. Bullshit. He said they had a vendetta against him and wanted to kill him. So McAfee calls one of his girlfriends to take some money out and bring it to where he was hiding at the boat place. Two days after the murder of Greg Falls, McAfee calls his driver, Tom, and tells him he needs to get out of the country. The police department got a tip that he had left San Pedro and was somewhere in Belize City. So McAfee is hiding out with the girlfriend. His driver is constantly moving him to new locations. During this time, McAfee himself is contacting the press basically nonstop, saying he wants to clear his name. Oh my god. But really, yeah, that's just a huge fucking ploy to control the narrative. Yeah. And like the girlfriend, if this is the situation, and I've called, be like, you need to take out money and come meet me. I'm like, yeah, sure, 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 cool, cool, cool. I take out the money and I fucking run. Get the fuck out of there. Because you, because you're now you're hiding a fugitive. You're an accessory to like no girl. I'm not gonna fucking do time for your crazy shit. Fuck no. No. This girl's like ride or die. Honestly, clearly she yeah even helps him out a little bit. I'm not gonna lie. And we know like so many trials can be swayed by the media and Mm. public perception is everything. Mm -hmm. So it was actually a really fucking smart strategy to do that but it's fucking infuriating that he did because he obviously just made it all about him and it takes all the focus away from Greg of Paul, and his murder. 
CNN reporter flew to Belize to interview McAfee. He was met at the airport with a code word. He was taken all over, switching cars back and forth. They tried to make it as convoluted as possible when taking him to see McAfee. He finally meets him at a low budget hotel. The reporter says McAfee's wearing an outlandish disguise like an old man with a crippled arm and powder in his hair to make himself look old. Oh my God. And he's literally walking with a cape. He says it's obviously McAfee in the disguise, but they didn't want to scare him off, so they pretended that they didn't realize it was him. Right. And when they arrive in the room, McAfee like throws off the disguise and uh -huh. is like, I fooled you. Design. Yeah. And they're like, haha, cool. So in the aftermath of Greg's death, and because McAfee is completely monopolizing the narrative and constantly talking to the press, that's all anyone is talking about is McAfee. So it becomes less and less about Greg's murder and more about this conspiracy that the Belizean government is trying to kill McAfee. Right, for him. Yeah, who for getting who. It's Fuck all you. me. Yeah, woe is me. To the point that you have all these high-ranking officials talking about McAfee, from the mayor of San Pedro to literally the prime minister of Belize, Dean Barrow, who said he thought McAfee was, quote, extremely paranoid, even bonkers, mm -hmm. end quote. That is an accurate and that's astute an accurate, you don't, observation. You are not a psychiatrist, but I'm going to stand by that. Mm -hmm. So now everyone knows who McAfee is because he's been all over the news. So his driver can't really hide him in Belize anymore. So he drove McAfee to the southernmost border of Belize near Guatemala. Since McAfee had seen Tom bullshit his way through checkpoints before, he was confident his driver could get him out of the country. So they just put him in a boat and sent it down to Guatemala. No customs, no immigration, nothing. Wow. Tom says he could have gotten McAfee's passport legally stamped, but once McAfee knew he was getting out in a boat, he took complete control. While he's hiding out in Guatemala, which is not really hiding anymore because as McAfee said, he could literally walk up to the police station and ask them for directions and they would just tell him where to go right. and nothing would happen. Mm -hmm. He still didn't want people to know exactly where he was. So he agrees to do this interview with Vice TV and meets with them so they can do the piece on him. And while they're there, they take a picture with him and post it forgetting to remove the geo tag before they do. Fuck yes. So Vice literally gives away John McAfee's exact location. Fuck. Yes. Yes. So now he's in trouble in Guatemala because they realized he entered the country illegally. Mm -hmm. But the girlfriend he's hiding out with, which is like his fucking ride or die now basically, says she has an uncle who's a super high profile lawyer and might be able to help him get out of the country. Despite claiming that he was seeking asylum in Guatemala, he was still a suspect in the murder of Greg Fall and Belize actually tried to extradite him for questioning and was ready to pick him up at the border. Yeah. Interpol discovered his exact location from the tagged picture and Vice was the only camera crew to catch the arrest because they were obviously the reason he was getting arrested. Right. <laughs> Keep in mind, he was only being arrested for entering the country legally. It had nothing to do with the murder. Right. He didn't care that he was arrested. He just didn't want to get sent back to Belize. He was put in jail and they were intending to deport him back to Belize the following morning. His lawyer comes to his cell and tells him he can't file an appeal until three o'clock. So until three, they could have deported him and he asked McAfee, do you understand? McAfee says, yes. Mm. So in front of all of the cameras, he suddenly swoons and appears to lose consciousness. Oh, shut the fuck up. Yep. Ugh. Literally faked a heart attack until oh. his lawyer could file an appeal. Oh my God. They rushed him to the hospital where he waits till exactly three o'clock. Oh. Then he pops up like, I feel fine now. You can take me back to prison. It's all good because he knows now he's not gonna get fucking sent back to Belize where he can face fucking trial right. for this man's murder. With the appeal filed, it meant that it would be 15 years before they could deport him back to Belize. Get the fuck out of here. Yes, since Guatemala didn't wanna just keep him in prison for 15 years, 
he was deported back to the States, which is what he fucking wanted anyway. He was technically still wanted for questioning in Greg Falls' murder, but was free in the States and was never formally charged with anything. He claimed that his millionaire madman persona, quote unquote, was just for the story to keep people interested. Oh, fuck you. The investigation in Belize now has to rely solely on forensic evidence going forward because there were no eyewitnesses to the crime. Mm. They were able to recover hairs from his clothing and a piece of a fingernail, which they found in his hair scalp area. Yeah. However, there isn't even a DNA lab in Belize. Oh my God. Or even the level of forensic expertise to solve a crime like that. Which he fucking knows. Yes. And the murder conviction rate is below 3%. Oh my God. It's insanity, right? At the time of the filming of the documentary, they had not solved any crimes with forensic evidence, which was 2016. It was the documentary. They barely use fingerprinting even. It's mainly just witnesses, facial recognition, or a confession. That's how they fucking... Like if this is fucking like 1880. Yes. Wow. Cashin was a caretaker of his, but also was one of his head guys and was the one responsible for paying people for him a lot of the time because McAfee trusted him so much. He was one of the people who was arrested when the police came to question McAfee about the murder. He was arrested for carrying an unlicensed firearm at the time. The morning after the dogs were poisoned, McAfee asked Cashin to take $5,000 and put it in Eddie Mac's account. On the night of the murder, McAfee's girlfriend said he was with her the entire time. However, around 4 a.m., Eddie called Cashin to come pick him up. When he asked him where he was, he said he was by the shop, which was located 600 feet down the beach from Fall's house and Greg's house was actually between the shop and McAfee's house. When asked if she had seen Eddie at McAfee's house at all in the days leading up to the murder, she said she saw him there in the morning after the dogs were poisoned. Cashin said he didn't put it together till later that the $5,000 had been for Eddie to kill the guy. Minette asked if the police had ever questioned him about the murder of Greg Fall, and he said no, not even when he was taken into the police station. They didn't ask him anything about the murder. Not if he knew anything, or even if he thought his boss had something to do with it. Nothing. Just like, hey, what's up? How, what are you doing? Yeah, this why do you have this illegal gun? Okay, cool. cool. Awesome. Bye. Bye, thanks. Did you hear anything next door last night? Nothing? All right. Literally nothing. When interviewed after the fact about Fall's death, Eddie claimed he was in Orange Walk all night and that he never received $5,000 from McAfee during that time, and he denied being hired to kill Greg Fall. When told that people had seen him at McAfee's house during that time, he again denied anything and he said he was just at home. In 2013, McAfee is living his life in America completely unaffected by what happened in Belize. He got married, he's in the news, he's doing all of these reports about cybersecurity, and he's just painting this new fucking persona for himself. He basically got away with possible murder, two murders and rape, bullying the police, paying young women for degrading sex, all of it without consequence. Oh my God. McAfee says he needs to keep the public interested in him, whatever it takes, even if that involves saying outlandish things like there are spy cameras hidden in cactuses. His need for public attention was fully realized when in 2016, he actually ran for president under the Libertarian Party while Greg Fall's murder was still being investigated. Oh my God. In early 2016, the Belizean police force asked the FBI for help, which finally allowed the FBI to investigate and potentially try the case in the US if they could collect enough evidence. It's four years after the murder at this point though, keep in mind. Yeah. One of McAfee's former girlfriends was picked up for questioning and when she was interviewed, she told police that Marcia Novello, another of McAfee's girlfriends, lured Greg to his house upstairs where she did a strip tease for him to distract him and keep the door open so Eddie could come in, who had been hired to do the execution. 
Eddie eventually fled Belize, telling Nanette that McAfee wanted to hurt him because of what he knows. Mm -hmm. Even though previously in their interviews, he denied ever being paid the money, ever going to the house, none of that happened. Right. McAfee constantly remains in the public eye and has managed to legitimize himself again by constantly weighing in as a cybersecurity expert in the media and in the press. People see him as this rebel, this eccentric, and they don't really care what he did as long as he's got brilliant ideas. He's reinventing himself and his image, and it's fucking working. I hate everyone. It's so infuriating. Like, this man went to a South American country when he started to lose his money in the States, and he basically created, like, his own little para-fucking-military operation and just, like, had a harem of women and murdered and did whatever he wanted. In one of his emails to Nanette, he calls his previous emails with her misinformation or disinformation and says, quote, I am merely doing what I always do, which is fuck with the media as much as I possibly can, end quote. On September 8th, 2016, McAfee claimed these incidents were fabricated, saying that, quote, Belize is a third world banana republic and you can go down there and make any story you want if you pay your interviewees, which Showtime did, end quote. In 2015, McAfee was arrested in the U.S. for driving under the influence and possession of a gun. Isn't that how the documentary starts? Yes. I'm always hesitant to start it with the sure the Big Bang. I'm going to be like, hey. But I kept that in here and I wrote it down because it's so fucking good. So literally, in the beginning of the documentary, you see the dash cam footage right. of him getting arrested for his DUI. And he's talking to the cop that it's arresting him. And he says, quote, You probably read about me. I'm the guy who started the McAfee antivirus. The guy who was accused of murder in Belize and then ran to Guatemala. Escaped to America. Been living here for three years. The FBI is going to be looking for me if you want to call them. End quote. Oh, fuck you. Right? Fuck you. Go fuck yourself. Fuck you. Fucking the hubris on this fucking motherfucker. Yeah, because I remember it started with a non-thing. Yes. Like a nothing thing. It actually was kind of the best way to start the documentary. 10,000%. Because it literally just like lays all of it out immediately. And then you're like, I'm sorry, wait, how did we get here? You're like, P.S., I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> yes. I know I know you're, you're booking me on a rolling stop, but like, but like <laughs> I murdered all these people. Okay, thanks, no big deal. Thanks. Last year, a Florida court ordered Mr. McAfee to pay $25 million after ruling against him in a wrongful death lawsuit filed by Mr. Falls' estate. In response, McAfee wrote on Twitter that he would not pay, calling the judgment part of a, quote, legal extortion game aimed at America's wealthy class. Oh, fuck end you. Quote. Fuck you, dude. Ugh. He also said he was never suspected of murder by the authorities in Belize or elsewhere. Yes, you fucking are. They are, you're wanted for questioning. You had to run away to Guatemala because they wanted you for questioning. In January 2019, McAfee announced that he was on the run from U.S. authorities and living internationally on a boat following the convening of a grand jury to indict him, his wife, and four of his 2020 presidential campaign workers on tax-related charges. I'm sorry, is the wife the girlfriend who helped him out? No. He flies into Florida when he gets shipped out from Guatemala and he gets a sex worker for the night and and just marries her. Falling yeah, falling in love with her and marrying her, and that's his wife now. She was a sex worker he met in Miami. There you go. There you go. I mean he has a tiny I mean it sounds like, like it. Also, like he wants a specific thing 
Yes. That like is really awkward to try to just pick up a stranger in a bar and sure. organically lead to that. Sure. That's definitely like a thing you need to bring a professional in. For who has like, yeah, a tarp and shit, I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> like, whatever you need yes. for that. In 2019, McAfee and members of his entourage were arrested while his yacht was docked in Puerto Plata, Dominican oh. Republic, on suspicion of carrying high-caliber weapons and ammunition. Yeah. He's not getting better. He's not, yeah, changing his ways in any way, shape, or form. Like, this is why this is a dangerous man. Fucking nuts. They were held for four days before being released. So he was in the news fairly recently, a couple months ago, because on October 3rd, 2020, McAfee was arrested in Spain, and he has been indicted for tax evasion in the U.S. after allegedly failing to declare millions of dollars in earnings. He was arrested by Spanish police while attempting to board a flight from Barcelona to Istanbul. McAfee had appeared before a high court judge via video link after his arrest and had remained in custody in a Catalan jail pending the extradition process. Prosecutors accused McAfee of failing to file tax returns from 2014 to 2018 even as he earned millions from promoting cryptocurrencies, consulting work, speaking engagements, and selling the rights to his life story for a documentary. McAfee has contended that taxes are illegal and has claimed in 2019... Oh my god. Yeah. You know what's illegal? Murdering people. Yes! How about that? And fleeing to other countries to escape questionings for that murder and then faking a heart attack to avoid getting deported to that country. (sighs) All that. The audacity is... Wild. Unreal. Like, yes. off the charts. Off the fucking charts. Yes. Claimed in 2019 that he'd not filed a tax return since 2010. Which, like, here's the thing. If you want to do a bunch of sketchy shit... Just pay your taxes. Just pay your taxes. Like, how many fucking people have they caught for not paying their fucking taxes? Heidi Fleiss. Fucking Al Capone. So, I mean, like, so many fucking mafia pay people. Like, yo shit. Dude. Murder people. Have run you a can brothel, do whatever, do whatever you the want, fuck you want, pay as long as fucking taxes. Uncle Sam gets his cut, they literally don't give a fuck. Ah, <sighs> it's fucked up, but it's true. It is, and like I'm not trying to like help you out and get you like away <laughs> with murder or anything, but file Look every you. year <laughs> for real. <laughs> he refers to himself as being a prime target of the International Revenue Service because oh, you're awesome. not paying your taxes. Yes. Since December of 2018, McAfee has stated several times on Twitter that he has 47 biological children. Oh my god. Which, yeah, I did not know, and I don't know if that's actually true, but that's horrifying to me. It doesn't actually surprise me because of... Sure. Although, if he's not having vaginal sex with these women... Girl, I don't know as much as you don't know. I don't know. I can't let the fucking hammock thing go. No. Trust me. Like, I know that all of you realize that that's my real obsession with this story. Like, yes. yes, the murder's crazy. Yes, I want him to be culpable for this and be brought in for questioning and everything. But I can't let the hammock go. I can't fucking let it go. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> Thank it's you. Insane. And I welcome all of you to bring this up in conversation whenever you can. <laughs> Goals for the year. McAfee says, quote, I plan to never return to the U.S., end quote. It's like, I'm okay with that. We don't want you, buddy. You can you can stay in that Spanish prison. Yeah, goodbye. So that's where he is right now. He's in a Spanish prison awaiting being deported for not filing his taxes. So that is the crazy-ass story of the antivirus pioneer, John McAfee. What a piece of shit. What a piece of shit. So every time you get that fucking little pop-up on your computer that's like, hi, you need to update your antivirus software, you can say, fuck you, uninstall. Uninstall. 
I'm good. I actually just had... I'm bad about paying my bills and that I'm good about them and that they're always in auto pay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I got a thing, like, and it's like, why, why is all this money missing? And I got a thing recently being like, you renewed your McAfee. And I'm like, oh. God, these motherfuckers. Yeah. Um, so don't give him any more money. If you can avoid it, he's a piece of shit. And up and until being caught for the fucking tax evasion thing, like, has just been living his life. And getting away with everything without immunity. It's fucking unacceptable. Greg Fall's family does not deserve that. No. They deserve justice. It's fucking bullshit. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. The story was amazing, though. Thank you. I couldn't remember if you had seen the documentary or not. And I thought you had, but it was one of those things where I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, and it was so long ago that I didn't remember so much of it. Okay. So it was amazing. Good. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks for being with us through these 10 episodes. It's pretty wild that... Yeah. Here's this is where we are. Ten years. Ten fucking years. Let's <laughs> let's get there. Fuck yeah. I mean, I approached Amy about putting this together over empanadas and marks. Yes. And she gave me an enthusiastic yes, and here we are. Here we are. Who knew? <laughs> I was like, well, it's either porn or a podcast, and I figured, you know. Hey, we can do a little call and call me. Oh shit. Guys, season two. Crazy. <laughs> gonna get wild up in here thanks so much for listening please follow us on instagram at another fucking you can find me at pinup girl mo you can find me at lobotomy that's lobot period amy please 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 email us your crazy stories ghost stories alien stories heavy emphasis on alien stories yes amy needs them so badly you have no idea cry myself to sleep every night <laughs> spooky stories true crime stories unexplained stories we want all of them like all the weird shit you want us to talk about that you want to talk about yeah we want to hear them please email those to another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of a you and fucking and keep it cute keep it creepy bye kids bye